Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome to the Thursday, October 12th, City of Sacramento Planning Design Commission meeting. Uh, please silence all electronic devices uh, or put them on uh, or turn them off. Uh, we'll begin with uh, roll call. Commissioner Bodipo Memba? Here. LaFaso? Here. Oville? Hoffman? Here. Lindsay? Here. Farrell? Here. Leckebaum? Here. Rogers? Here. Juan Connolly? Here. Yee? Here. Ogilvie? Here. Vice Chair Lucian? Here. Chair Burke? Here. We have a quorum. Thank you. Um, I just want to make an announcement. If any individual is here to make a comment, public comment on any of the items, please feel free to fill out a comment card which is on the back windowsill and bring it to the Commission Secretary. We'll call your name so you can speak on any item on the agenda. We'll go with this consent calendar. Um, item number one, approval of the minutes of September 21st, 2017. Commissioner Coffin. Okay, we have an amendment from Commissioner Kaufman that he was present at the meeting on September 21st. Is there a second? Second from Commissioner Pluckybaum. Uh, can we can we take a, a, a roll to amend the minutes? Uh, then we'll take a, a roll call to approve the minutes. Mr. Chairman. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I have another question about the minutes. I wanted to let you wrap up your amendment motions into one, if possible. Even better. I would, I'll let the other commission now be sustaining. I was not present at the last commission meeting. Okay. Uh, if, 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 if I may, I believe item three from the last meeting, the ordinance amending, deleting, and adding various provisions of Title 17 relating to cannabis cultivation, et cetera, et cetera. I believe the motion was to approve the staff recommendation with additional direction which I provided, which is why I remember it. It was the whole thing about the staff reports and itemizing the uses separately and all that kind of stuff. That's not reflected in the minutes. That's why I'm raising that. So perhaps we could just use the usual language in the report and say to approve the staff recommendation with amendments. Yes, we can do that. Thank you. We'll, we'll take a vote now on uh, amending the, the new amendment and also a subsequent vote on the minutes itself. Commissioner Bodipo Memba? Abstain. LaFaso? Aye. Hoffman? Aye. Lindsay? Aye. Farrell? Aye. Lucky Bomb? Aye. Rogers? Aye. Juan Connolly? Aye. Yee? Aye. Ogilvie? Aye. Vice Chair Lucian? Aye. Chair Burke? Stay. Motion passes. Thank you. We'll go to number two, the director's report. I wanted to give the um, commission just a brief overview of uh, the remaining meetings that we have coming up the rest of the year. Um, our next meeting will be October 24th. We have four items currently scheduled for that meeting. We have three meetings scheduled in November, uh, November 2nd and 16th, which the agendas for uh, that meeting are quite full. So I just wanted to give you a heads up about that. 
Um, and November 30th, we're looking at kind of doing a uh, meeting that focuses on long-range planning items for that night. And then the final um, evening meeting for the year will be uh, December 7th, and we don't have too much on that agenda yet, but I'm sure we'll get there. So just a big um, notification that, of what we have coming up. Thank you so much, Director Cosgrove. We'll go to the public hearing, and once again, any public comment, uh, please file a card, bring it to the front to Commission Secretary. We'll start with item number three, uh, Roost Staller Company, P-170400. Uh, any commissioners need to abstain or recuse himself from this item? <clears throat> Commissioner Ogilvy? I'm going to recuse myself. My employer is the project architect. Thank you. Any other commissioners? Seeing none. Again, the staff presentation. Okay, well, good evening, Chair and fellow commissioners. Robbie Thacker in the planning department. Uh, this project is uh, P17040. This is the Roostaller Brewing Company project. Uh, the applicant, uh, Roostaller Brewing Company, is requesting a conditional use permit to operate a bar within the existing building located at 726 K Street. Uh, no brewing or manufacturing operations would occur at the project site. Uh, no modifications to the exterior of the building are proposed with the application as well. <clears throat> the project is located on the south side of K Street uh, between 7th and A Street uh, near the Golden One Center. The site is currently under construction to complete the rehabilitation project, which was approved in 2011. Uh, staff has received no comments or concerns related to the project. Staff recommends that the Commission approve the request for a conditional use permit and find the project exempt from CEQA, uh, subject to the findings and conditions of approval contained in your uh, staff report. Uh, the applicant, J.E. Pano, is here to answer any questions you might have for him as well. And that concludes my presentation. Thank you. Any, any commissioner qu questions or comments for staff? I'll see none. Oh, Commissioner Kaufman. Thank you, Mr. Chair. So there was something in the staff report about how solid waste was going to be handled and some other functions were going to be handled through alley uh, doors. I didn't see anything there about deliveries. How are deliveries going to be handled? Uh, perhaps the applicant can come up and answer that question as well. Um, but my understanding is that it would be uh, in the public alley, but just for confirmation. Hello, um, my name is J.E. Pano. Thanks for having us tonight. Um, the landlord, Baymiri, has told us we have two options. One is off the alley behind the building. Um, it's a uh, rather long distance to our space. The other option is to do it off of K Street, as long as we're off of the uh, railroad tracks. We have a elevator and... Uh, ADA lift in the space, uh, which we could use to safely get primarily kegs, but other things down down to the basement. But none of it requires truck deliveries. It's nothing that large. No, I mean, what we're asking is simply to serve uh, our own beer. So it would be 80 to 90% of the deliveries would be just that, kegs. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Kaufman. Commissioner Wong Conley. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. 
so the license uh, is uh, title uh, is type twenty three, and that is Mike for Michael Brewery, right? But you do not have plan to brew on site. So then, why you got the license for uh, type twenty three? Correct. So type twenty three license is a small brewery license, which uh, entitles us to brew up to six million barrels of beer, which is a lot of beer. Um, it also gives us some other privileges. One of those privileges is to have up to six tasting rooms where we can have all the privileges of a small brewing manufacturing facility other than brewing. So, uh, for example, um, and that's what this would be. Our primarily brewing is done in Dixon uh, in Solano County, and this would be just a tasting room or a tap room. Um, there are examples of that in Sacramento and on the grid already. Field House is one which has their primary brewing in Berkeley, and then this is one of several tap rooms that they currently have. Uh, Golden One, a uh, Golden Road is also establishing a facility like that here in Sacramento. They brew, uh, I don't know where they brew, but not on this spot, so it's quite common. But it is a, within the ABC Type 23 uh, license we have those privileges of up to six tasting rooms so the tap room will be an uh, individual isolated room then uh, tell me about the tap room what's that so it's simply a place where people can come and taste our beer even it's not brewed outside but then they can come to taste a different type. correct it, it we are only allowed to, to serve our own beer that we brew so we can't uh, that's the connection. Okay, I see. Thank you. Maybe I can clarify real quick. Uh, tap room is just kind of an, another name for for a bar where a craft brewery might sell their own beer, and they just call it a tap room versus it being a, beer, a bar. Our zoning code just classifies it as a bar, but it, they're essentially the same thing. Okay, yeah. got it. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner. You have another question, Commissioner Long Calling? Another question, Commissioner Wankali? Or no. oh, thank you. thank you so much, Commissioner Lindsay. Um, just a quick question. Um, so you won't be serving food. Are you be serving anything else with the beer. We um, do. Uh, we're not planning on serving food that is prepared on site. Um, we may have peanuts or pretzels. Okay. But we don't. So, so something else to go along with the beer, and then you have no connection with the with the restaurant that's on site. Correct. Okay. Correct. And okay. and. Part of the reason we don't want to serve food is many, we, we have a lot of the restaurants around us are our customers, so we don't want to compete with them. We want people to come get to know us a little bit, mm -hmm. have a beer, and then go to other establishments and have dinner and hopefully have another roostaller. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Lindsay. Commissioner Bodipa member. Thank you, Chair Burke. Just a quick follow-up on Commissioner Lindsay's question regarding food. <clears throat> I did notice that the design has an event and event area uh, where you could have gatherings. Are there plans to cater uh, for those types of events? Um, the event space we call the captain's quarters is where the pool table is. And so what we have found is that space People maybe want a birthday party or whatnot, and we tell them if they want to bring food or have it catered, they can. Um, but we're not planning on 
It obviously has to be prepared at a licensed facility or, or bought someplace. And then related to that, food trucks or any discussion, because I've seen other tap rooms where they've had a working relationship. Is there is there plans for that? Uh, and if so, where would that loading exist? I don't think so. It doesn't really work in this space. We enter off of K Street. Our entrance is off of K Street. It's, it'll be quite congested once all the other right. businesses open up. you got the railroad, the RT right out front and then we don't have very good access to the alley so it doesn't make sense in this spot i i agree with it tens of questions so i appreciate that maybe one more question for staff as it relates to food um and bringing food on the premises are there any restrictions based off of the um <clears throat> the zoning that exists as to how they can handle food off-site and on-site uh no there would be no restrictions it's a commercial zone so Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Bodipa member. We'll, we'll take public comment on this item. Thank you, sir. Um, any any public comment on this item? Have any comments? Feel, please fill out a card, bring it to the secretary. Okay. Uh, seeing no public comment on this item. We'll take any motions or additional questions. Commissioner Pluckybell. I move approval of staff recommendation. I have a, a, a motion uh, from Commissioner Pluckybond, a second from Commissioner Juan Conley. Um, we'll take the roll, but before we take the roll, I just want to say that uh, uh, I want to, to the owner, uh, we thought we were going to lose you with the new arena, so it was good to see you just move a couple feet down the street. So, big fan, but farm to fork and also farm to beer, apparently, but uh, congratulations. So, we'll take the roll. Commissioner Pluckybaum? Aye. Rogers? Aye. Juan Connolly? Aye. E. Farrell? Aye. Lindsay? Aye. Kaufman? Aye. LaFaso? Aye. Odipo Memba? Aye. Vice Chair Lucian? Aye. Chair Burke? Aye. Motion passes. Thank you. We'll go to item number two now, uh, which is the Thai Buddhist Temple. P17-066, any commissioners need to recuse themselves or abstain from this item? Seeing none, we'll go to the staff presentation. Mr. Meltzer. Thank you. Good evening, Chair Burke, and thank you, commissioners. My name is Ethan Meltzer. I'm an assistant planner with the Community Development Department, and I'm here as the assigned project planner for project P15-066, which is a Thai Buddhist temple project. Um, the project is a request to establish an assembly use as well as construct two main assembly buildings and monk and nun quarters totaling approximately 9,792 square feet on a 6.15 acre parcel. The request also includes tree removal permits and deviations. Uh, at this time, staff has not received any emails, letters, or phone calls from the public in opposition to this request. And that includes an early notice that was sent out to the community as well as community associations on July 19th, and then also a 10-day notice um, in the mail on October 2nd before this hearing today. 
Um, because of this, staff um, has deemed this project non-controversial and uh, we're going to waive our presentation. Um, however, the applicant is here. Um, they would like to make uh, two very brief presentations and um, staff also just found out they're, they're going to be requesting two minor modifications to uh, their conditions of approval. So, thank you. Just one quick question. I also saw at the site a big sign uh, that said, right, yeah. that was put up by the applicant, correct? Not the city. Correct. Yes. Okay. So, uh, is there any public comment on this? Any questions before, before public comment? Any commissioner questions? Staff? Oh, sorry. The applicant wants to. Please proceed, ma'am. Sorry about that. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for having us here today. Um, my name is Catherine Stone Rickert. I've been a member of Watt Sacramento Buddha Vonaran since 2012. I originally joined the temple to attend Thai language and culture school, and then thereafter I began to study Dhamma and practice meditation. Uh, we're delighted to be here today to speak to you about the development of the new Thai Buddhist temple facility at 133 Mori Avenue in Sacramento. Being here today means we have made progress towards the realization of the dream, and the dream is here. Throughout the year, the temple holds important Buddhist ceremonies and traditional Thai cultural events for the temple members and general public to gather and participate in. These events are held on Sundays. However, the space is limited, and the present temple, which is a modified three-bedroom house on three-quarter acres, is a bit limited for us. Since the temple was originally established in 2001, the temple membership has grown. The future temple site is located on 6.15 acres, which has the space to allow us to construct the six temple structures to include the sermon hall and assembly hall. As you will see, the new temple will have beautiful architectural features of the traditional Buddhist temples in Thailand and a green space where a forest will grow over time. The design and landscape considerations will make for a serene and peaceful place to gather and learn meditation. Additionally, a place where Thai culture is preserved and experienced. As you may know, Buddhist meditation techniques have become known throughout the world, which aim to develop mindfulness or awareness, concentration, tranquility, and insight. Mindfulness is the act of focusing on being in the present and removing overpowering emotions from the mind. With that being said, I wish to thank you for your time this evening and your mindfulness this evening. At this time, I would like to introduce to you just very briefly the abbot of Wat Sacramento, Prachalurm Sawadi, is here. Also, we have a visiting abbot from Wat Concord. The abbot of Wat Concord has also visited us today. The president of the lay community for Wat Sacramento is also here. The treasurer. Our language school director, Ajahn Nonglak. 
And we also have our civil engineers here today um, in the event that you have any questions. And our members are also here today. And we thank them for coming to support us. Uh, one of the items that we did want to bring up was condition 5B and 5.8. Twice a year we do have uh, special events. On the uh, narrative that was uh, provided to you that will give you a good idea of the project, there's an appendix which states the events that we hold throughout the year. There are only two large events. And typically, we would need more than um, the limitation of 150 people on site. But it's only twice a year. And we are asking, is there a possibility of an amendment or modification to B5 regarding the number of folks that can be on the site at any one time? As well as B8 regarding sound, we do have traditional Thai dancing and culture, which is amplified uh, on, a, on a speaker so folks can hear. Um, we also have chanting so that the folks can also hear uh, our, our monks chanting as well. But again, it's only during these special events. My understanding, we may be able to ask for a special event permit, uh, but I'll, let, I'll defer to you on on those items. Thank you. We'll, we'll take that into consideration. Thank you, Thank you so much. much. Thank you very much. We'll take any commissioner comments for staff or the applicant now. Uh, I believe Commissioner Wong Conley had a question. Uh, yes, first <clears throat> for the applicant. Thank you for the presentation. So when you talk about the two events that uh, you will need amplified sound and more than 150 people. So uh, what's the time, um, <clears throat> the date and time? The, the time, these events would only be held on Sundays and the time uh, we would begin at approximately 9.45. The ritual start at 10.15, so we start to explain to the guests what the activities will be for that day and protocol. Um, and then it should conclude approximately 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock at the latest. Generally, things wind down about 2 o'clock. Okay. And a question for, thank you, question thank you. for the staff. So the restriction on the sound and the uh, member of attendance is for the, is that for the school adjacent and also for the residential area? Yes. And do you see that if they have the two events on Sundays during the day, start at 9.45, would that have a minimum impact to the residents and the school? Yeah, if it's two times a year, 9.45 to 3 p.m., that seems like that would be reasonable. That would and have a big th impact. Thank you. And how, much people you are, how many people are you expecting for the events? I mean, 150 is not enough, so how many are we talking about? Well, in the years past, uh, we have just on two, the two occasions I'm speaking are, of are tiny years, which is in April. And then we had a special event just last week, which is the second, which is the giving of the robes and the end of the rains retreat period, which are both very important. Um, it could be anywhere around two, 250, 300. 50, 300. Okay. May I defer to, um, the president? Sure. If 
Um, I have a question for staff. Maybe we can talk. Oh, okay. I apologize. Each year it differs the number of people. Some members are able to come and others are not, but we would say a good average would be 300. 300? Yes. Okay. Thank you. That for is answering. on the yeah, busy end. <laughs> the staff, oh, do you see 300? Would, would that change your opinion on the impact to the residential neighborhood and school? I would like to ask the applicant a question, if you don't mind. Those events, are they normally on a weekend no. or a weekday? They're on a weekday? They're only on Sunday. Only on Sunday, okay. That's only on Sunday. And that number, again, for instance, this last weekend, there was just a small number of folks that came. And then on other events, which, um, for instance, the, the Buddhist or the Thai New Year, there would be more people because it would be, I guess, similar to us having our New Year's here in the United States. But it's just those two events. The okay. second event I mentioned is more of a, a religious event. Thank you. So does that change your opinion for Sunday to event between 9.45 and uh, 2.30 with the 300 people on site? Um, I am thinking that through, so my apologies for my silence, but we're looking at two days a year on a weekend day or on Sunday, and if the um, operator kind of made an effort to make sure that people would carpool as much as possible, which they do intend to do, then I think that it would not impact the neighborhood greatly. Thank you. And then uh, one condition that I'm not, uh, um, so there's one condition mentioned <coughs> about uh, uh, straight light on the, I think it's, uh, hold up. Uh, yeah, where is the F street on site? I don't think I see it. It's a, this application requires ornamental street lights on F street. So that is a condition that we received from our um, public works division on electrical. And that's a typical street, and that is usually just what probably is referring to Maury Avenue, so that may be a typo. Oh, okay. Yeah, because they're going to be putting in curbs, gutters, and sidewalks, and that would be lighting as well. So we can modify that to say Maury. Okay, thank you. And then um, the very last advisory note says the current landscape plan is not entirely accurate, and there may be other private protected trees on the site that are not shown on the landscape plan. So um, my question is, uh, what do we do if it's not accurate? So um, they submitted an arborist report um, more recently than we received that advisory note. That advisory note should not have been put in there. Um, we received their arborist report and it was accepted by our urban forestry department where we got both of those tree permits from. So the, those are accurate. The tree permits that they are applying for are accurate. So that means all the condition that uh, uh, you put in there uh, all stands and then this advisory notes that it's not applicable at this point. That's correct. Okay, thank you. That's all my question. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Commissioner Wong Conley. 
Commissioner Yee. Thank you. A uh, couple of quick questions for staff. Uh, there was a bit of discussion on parking, and that was relative to uh, 150 members on site. And a comment from in the report that talks about availability of parking on the street. Knowing now that you know carpooling and all of those techniques uh, in consideration, there is, I think, a significant increase in potential participation, potential cars, parking, and such. So two questions. One, do you think that there is capacity on the street uh, for those six hours of the event twice a year for the additional parking requirements? That was one question. Okay. That was one question. The other question is, <laughs> so I'll get both of them out of the way. I cannot tell, and I did not have the opportunity to drive by the site. Are there sidewalks on the street? Um, if not, then, you know, we have uh, a safe path of travel concern, potentially, depending on how far away uh, the participants are parking and how they're going to get from point A to point B. So, um, bundle those two together, and I have some other questions, but, you know, parking and path of travel. Uh, so for your second question, uh, the applicant will be installing curb gutter and sidewalk along their adjacent public street frontage. So there will However, be. If the parking or whatever street parking, uh, that could easily extend beyond their property. And so if you're parking east and west, um, there is no sidewalk. For, for portions on the west side, there is no existing sidewalk. On the east side, if you go about, I don't want to give a number, about 200 feet, um, that's where the, the sidewalk does continue. So it, it, it doesn't continue all the way. There's a bit of a gap on the east side, um, but there is existing sidewalk in that um, neighborhood. Any sidewalks on the south side of the street? I'll have to look at the aerial. I, I couldn't tell what the aerial but as Ethan is looking that up, I also know that on other projects, what we did is we have required that they have kind of a, a attendant parking so that they kind of help facilitate the parking as well. We can on-site have, parking. Yeah, so yeah, we can parking or something like and that. And then even like on-site to maybe hopefully maximize the parking that they can have for this event on-site, and then um, so I think that might help, and we can condition to add that to add that as well. I still would be interested in some sort of assessment at some point about the capacity. I, I think that may be difficult uh, to get within a couple of minutes. But uh, with the request to have amplified sound twice a year, 9.45 to 3 o'clock, understood, uh, if that is to be granted, if that is part of uh, the conditions that will be accepted by the commission, uh, would there be the need to have some guidelines as far as decibels and all that? So there could be a companion or additional conditions in order to define some limits with the amplified sound. Would that be reasonable? Yes, and we could work with event services to identify what would be the appropriate decibel levels as well. They have a lot of experience in this. We can work with them. And, you know, again, it does look like there's a lot of vegetation to try to mitigate, mitigate noise uh, 
moving throughout the area. So uh, last, or not second to last, and I may be jumping ahead a little bit, but with these two events, uh, would it be reasonable to ask for notification to the neighbors uh, in advance, especially considering that one, there's noise, two, there's parking, and three, again, if accepted, these conditions were not known to anyone that would have read the staff report, but not here today. And that may be a consideration to whoever makes a motion to incorporate that notification. Right, so we have a condition that includes a good neighbor policy, and we could add to that a requirement to notify neighbors, I'm thinking of what would be the appropriate distance. It's in there. Oh, it's already in there. about including events. But that does, uh, do yeah. they address specifically these two special events? No, it does not. I but think we, those, the, I, as I recall, it's a general good neighbor exactly. policy. Yeah. I would like to make sure that to these two events that they're given adequate, whatever you deem adequate to be, week, a month, ahead of this so that the neighbors would know. Okay. And the request would be that it's not only the property owners, but those who live on the parcels with, within 500 feet or so, so that okay. the occupants are, are notified, not just the property owners. What we'll do is we'll modify that condition to, to include that. Okay. And having said all that, uh, do you think that the consideration of these uh, two events would warrant outreach to the community before we take final action? I don't want to prolong, but I think we should consider whether it rises to that level of concern or not. So we did, I'm gonna talk as I think. <laughs> so I'm gonna think out loud. We did do an early notice 300 foot radius, no comment. The applicant per staff request, they put a large sign on their site notifying of this potential project and we didn't get any um, comments either and then for the noticing for this hearing we did not get any comments um, I, I want to make sure we a I asked the question I don't yeah. necessarily think it's necessary considering what what we've talked about but no it, it, exactly so I'm what I was trying to gauge is like the interest in the project but this is introducing something different so what additional you're asking what additional outreach be required in order to, now that there's this new component to the project. If there should be if additional there is, outreach, right. right. Due to parking and noise. Perhaps you could consider that before we get to a motion, if there are other speakers. Unless you have an answer. May I? Continue to hear other comments before Absolutely. I give an answer. <laughs> Thank, okay. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Yee. Uh, before we get to Commissioner Woody, but remember, I have one quick question for staff. These two um, extraordinary events, I know we have Morley Avenue School down the street. The applicant said it was on a Sunday, correct? Okay. 
Thank you. Commissioner Bodipa member. Thank you, Chair Burke. Um, just following off of Commissioner E's question, um, <clears throat> the bicycle parking, I, I noticed that uh, we're looking at 17 short-term spaces as opposed to what would be traditionally required, 25. And with this new information, could you maybe give a little bit more um, background as to why staff would support uh, deviation with, with eight fewer spaces than what's required and whether there's also any physical limitations based on the site design to provide those spaces? So we basically decided that we were going to justify that deviation because um, there's, there's a few reasons. I, I think that the, the calculation that we do in order to um, come up with the parking requirements and the bike parking requirements, um, it is interesting for the assembly uses. And um, since they do not have any um, chairs or tables in their um, facility, they have a different type of um, calculation in order to get to what the um, what the overall parking requirement is, and we felt that that was extremely high. They're required over 100 parking spaces for this type of use, as well as 25 bike parking spaces. Um, we felt that that was um, a bit much and that it was justified to reduce it slightly. Um, we also feel that since that there is not uh, bike lanes all the way down um, Maury Avenue, that um, there, the, the applicant will be installing curb gutter and sidewalk and bike lane in front of their portion of the property, but it doesn't connect, as I mentioned, on the west side of the property. And they, um, the applicant also in their project description outlined uh, several ways that they were going to try to get their, um, their members to carpool and take alternative modes of transportation out there. Um, and so that's how we came to that justification. And I guess just to, to I guess maybe restate my question, it seemed as if, based off the staff report, that you really leveraged the maximum assembly use to, to determine your number. And I'm, I'm, I'm asking now that we have some more information about the larger assembly uses, um, whether, and maybe, maybe the applicant can help answer this question, whether there are any physical uh, infrastructure uh, limitations that would bar them from uh, allowing 25 uh, bike spaces on site. May I clarify something before we move forward? The uh, condition B5 regarding the number of people was relative to the two big events that we've discussed. The B8 condition regarding sound would apply to all of the events that are listed on the appendix because we have to introduce to the gathering the purpose of the event. So, and we have chanting. So there would be just that uh, during the period of the event for all of them, the 150 limitation was with respect just to the two large events if there could be um, a modification for an increase in the number of folks that could attend. Second, regarding parking, uh, this question has is, is come before. Um, we're considering um, a shuttle 
the property next door to where we currently located, which is right around the corner, for just 0.6 miles from the new location. We've been in the same neighborhood all of these years and not had uh, any complaints or problems. We've become good neighbors with our neighbors. Um, there was also a letter sent out prior to this hearing today that went out to the, all, all of the neighbors, as was mentioned, and we did not have any negative feedback. So I feel that we are a, um, a uh, presence in the community, a positive presence, and we just are trying to enhance the, the beauty of, of our, our temple and our neighborhood as well. But we are literally going to be on the next street over. If you could throw a stone, you would be right there. So I think that the community that we're speaking of is, is familiar with us and comfor comfortable with us. But as far as parking, there uh, we do have cooperation with our neighbor. They have a large parcel next to us, and they allow us to use that for parking when we have the larger events. For example, this last week. But typically, that's only, you know, as I mentioned, just twice a year. Is it possible for you to answer the specific question related to, to bicycle parking? Uh, I would defer to the civil in, our civil engineer, Mr. Okay. Sunate. Sure. Thank you. Yes, I'm um, Sunate I'm the volunteer coordinator <coughs> to help the project. And uh, regarding to the parking, uh, we know that um, we provide about 60 spaces, but anyhow, um, we still have the space in the back right here with it any time that we can we can add more uh, in the future just only the temporary uh, parking just to be clear are you referring to vehicle parking or bicycle parking uh, talking about uh, uh, vehicle parking and one more thing that I would like to add that uh, anytime that we have our uh, temple have a special day we also send a, a letter not really that later. Uh, we send the flyers and we, we drive by to each uh, properties and we drop the flyers to notify our neighbor that we're going to have a, a special gathering or any worship on that day just to let them know that it's going to be have a special day on that day. So try to lessen the impact of the, um, all the noise and all the traffic in that area. I just want to make sure I can understand your, your statement. Are you saying that you're looking to add additional vehicle parking based off of the need, or are you saying that there's capacity to add? And then That's I guess in the case, second, if, if we uh, reach to the um, uh, capacity that we we reach, we may have to consider some other means to 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 increase the parking. It, I'm going to let my other commissioner maybe follow up with that question, but I guess my specific question had to do with, with the bicycle park. Oh, the bicycle? The, short, the short term bicycle parking. Oh, sure. So currently I'm, I'm, there's 17 short term spaces, and there's a, a deviation being asked for, for the 17 spaces versus what would traditionally be required is 25. And I was wondering whether there's any infrastructure limitations based off of some of the, the new events that you brought forward to us that would. Uh, restrict the site from being able to expand from 17 to 25. Sure, I don't think that we have a problem to provide the 17 uh, uh, temporary bicycle parking. So you currently have planned to provide 17. Sure, we be happy. Would there be a problem in providing 25? Um, even 25, we shouldn't have any problem at all. Our space along the buildings and on the parking, we have a pretty uh, 
plenty of space. That helps answer my question. Thank you. Thank you very much. At this time, um, one more thing. Um, I have uh, uh, one gentleman. He is uh, Mr. Neil uh, Flanson. He would like to come to, to, to have a short speech. He's a project architect for our uh, temple. I'll defer to our, our chair. I think the question has been answered. Have you? Yeah, I believe my question has been answered, but if there's additional. We'll hold off on that for now. Um, he can obviously speak during public comment period. All right. Um, Commissioner Kaufman. Thank you, Mr. Chair. It's a question for staff. So if these conditions were not changed and the applicant had to go and get event permits, are there things that have, you've heard in this conversation among the commissioners about additional requirements that we might put on here that exceed the requirements that they would have to meet if they wanted to just get an event permit? I believe event permits are, and I, and I apologize, I'm not that familiar with the event permit, but I think they're for public areas anyway. So I think what we would like to do is these conditions, kind of because they're about the specific site that we're familiar with, I think the conditions would suffice, and the additional conditions or the modifications to the conditions. And just to summarize what I've heard so far as potential modifications to the conditions is to have attendant parking during these two events. Also, um, limit the amplified sound only to those two holidays. And limit the um, amplified sound on those two holidays between 9.45 and I think it was 3 p.m. Increase the number of people to 300, um, a maximum of 300 for those events. Notice neighbors prior to the event and we'll work with the applicant to make sure that we determine an appropriate radius as well as how much time and before and then also increase um, temporary or sorry um, bicycle parking short-term bicycle parking to 25 spaces which is the regulation so there wouldn't be a deviation required so i think those are adequate for this particular site and wouldn't need or would at least be comparable to a, a event permit that was Okay, I just wanted to make sure that we weren't holding them to standards that exceeded what they would have to meet yeah. otherwise, like, you know, having some public outreach um, to <laughs> notice it or, you know, what, whatever those things are. Right. Uh, I think what you're suggesting is reasonable, and I think what they're suggesting is reasonable, too. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Kaufman. Commissioner Yee? Thank you. A point of clarification based on what uh, was just stated. I am understanding that the request for amplified sound outdoors is not just limited to the two large events, but it is for every, every special event, of which there's a list of, I believe, eight. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. And I'm looking at the list of eight, and... They're given specific dates, January 1, February 22nd, and such. Without going through the calendar, these could be, or let me ask, are they Sundays? Are they weekends? All these dates are Sundays. The events are only on Sundays. Okay. And these events would also be from 945 to 3 p.m.? Yes. Okay. So the only change that from what I thought was 
originally being requested regarding Amplified Sound it is, is the request is not just to two special large events, but is also to the eight smaller events. All of the events will occur on Sundays. All the events will then occur between 9.45 and 3 p.m. The only difference between these events, the eight and the two, is that the two will have approximately 300 people attend, whereas the other eight will probably have more, something closer to 150. Is that correct? Correct. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Yee. Commissioner Kaufman. Yeah, I'm sorry to belabor this. I, I appreciate that clarification. You're going to have to change um, any reference to specific dates, right? Because you're only going to be right one out of every seven years. Or six, one out of six. Thank you. Pardon me. We use the lunar calendar to set our events, and we try to uh, have the event to the closest Sunday that we possibly can. So that's why the date varies, with the exception of January 1st. I have to say that, that's all. Thank you. Any other commissioner questions, comments? We'll go to public comment on this item. Any individual who wants to speak, there's a comment cards in the back. Turn it to the commission secretary. Um, our first public speaker is Kevin McRae. And once again, any other folks who want to speak, there's a comment card in the back. Hi, thank you for the opportunity. Through my wife, I've been a member of the temple since it began in 2001. And I'm here mainly to reiterate what you heard earlier a moment ago from Catherine when she said that the temple is changing locations but staying within the neighborhood. If you look at a map, basically it's a square of land bordered by four roads and they're moving from one road across to the other. They're probably within 500 feet at the new location from where their activities were at the old location. So the neighbors have heard all of this for a dozen plus years. There's nothing new. If they'd had a problem and they were noticed, they would have responded, I believe. So this is to allay your concerns in the case you haven't driven by. Thank you. Thank you. Any additional public comment on this item? Seeing none. There's one gentleman uh, would like to come to talk to uh, Mr. Neil Franson. Sure, is he our though? project architect? Sure, he'll speak during public comment. Yes. I'm Neil Franson for the Franson Group Architects, and uh, I'm really excited about this project, and I'm glad that we're as far along as we are. And so if there's any questions you'd like to ask about the buildings, I'd be happy to talk about it. Thank you so much, sir. Commissioner, you have a question? 
Yes, uh, the deviation in building height. Pardon? The deviation for exceeding the building height limitation, that is based, that primarily is a spire. Is that what's causing the height deviation? I believe um, we can we can adjust that or. I'm not asking for an adjustment. I'm trying, I'm trying to identify where the deviation is, and I believe it's in the spire. I'm getting staff to say yes. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Thank you. And we have a, another comment card from Joseph Parker. Thanks for the opportunity to, uh, to leave a few comments here. Um, the uh, Watt Sacramento fulfills, of course, a very important uh, function within the community, not only a spiritual, but also, also social. Um, uh, it's... Uh, an important location for uh, folks to be able to pray together, uh, talk together, and also socialize together. Uh, I also recognize it as an important institution in building social capital within the Thai and uh, Thai Anglo community here in uh, Sacramento. Uh, having been a member for approximately 10 years with my wife, I've uh, seen that the uh, uh, at the functions we are speaking of, uh, folks have been uh, courteous. Uh, it does appear to me that the neighbors are well aware of what's happening um, and have uh, been conscientious in uh, their coming and going into the neighborhood. Uh, so um, I just wanted to say that uh, I fully support and I hope that you will also the petition before you. Thank you. Seeing no further public comment, any commissioner, additional commissioner questions, motions, comments? Vice Chair Lucian? I'd like to uh, move the uh, amended staff recommendation. I have a motion from Vice Chair Lucian and a second uh, from Commissioner Farrell. Um, thank you. We'll take the vote as soon as we uh, take Mr. Yee's question or comment. Um, a question for staff and then a question for the maker of the motion. The question of staff, uh, on the east property line, there are some structures on the adjacent site. What are those structures? Are they storage or what, what are those? Are you saying on the project site or on the adjacent? On the adjacent site on the east, on the common east property line relative to applicants? On the east side. Um, so that's on the east side, there's a school there um, with storage containers, and then there's also a single family residence on. Okay, on so side. those are storage containers butting up on the applicant's east property line. Okay, let's talk about the school. On their west side, what are those structures? Are they storage? I, I believe that those are storage containers. Okay, thank you. To the maker of the motion, uh, could you clarify what the amendments are? There's been a lot of discussion. Can you go through that list again, staff? May I? Yes. So 
The amendments are, and this is taken into consideration, that amplified sound would be allowed for all eight of the celebrations. Eight, all, eight plus two. Eight. Um, the two are in. Are the two incorporated in the eight? Yes. Okay, I'm sorry. Then That's eight. okay. Thank you. <laughs> and so it would be for the larger events to allow up to 300 people. And that would be the Songkran and the Oaks Fonsa, and I apologize if I mispronounced that. Okay, and then the, and so that's the attendant parking for those two events. Amplified sound for all eight, hol all eight holidays. Um, limit the hours of the special event between 9.45 and 3 p.m. for the amplified sound. In, um, and again, allow up to 300 people for those two events. Notice neighbors for the larger events. And increase the bicycle, the temper, the short-term bicycle parking to 25 spaces. And if I may suggest to make her the motion and seconder, I think we heard that irrespective of the dates shown in the staff report that these events will change dates but they will occur on Sundays. So if we could stipulate that the events, that the eight events will occur on Sunday in addition to the other conditions that you have. I think the exception would be uh, New July, Year's Day. January 1. Yes. With that exception, the okay. other seven would occur on Sundays. If that is acceptable. That is acceptable to me. Thank you. Fantastic. Um, thank you, Commissioner Yee. Commissioner Wong Conley. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. So even we do, we allow them using amplified sound for the eight special events. They still have to comply with the noise ordinance of the city. Absolutely. Is that correct? Okay. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Any additional questions? Before we take the vote, I just want to thank the applicant for clarifying the questions we had. Um, I know you have a school on that block, another church at the end of the block. A lot of deviations were in the staff report that you, you sought. So the good neighbor policy is going to be very essential. Um, so thank you. Um, we'll take the vote. Oh, sorry. Uh, Chair Meredith Bodipa Mimbo. Thank you, Chair Burr. I just want to. One quick comment. Really want to thank the community for for coming through and, and showing how important a part of the community this project is. Uh, I know this project to be intimidating on that side, so we really appreciate you participating actively. Before you vote, may I just do one thing? There was a lot of effort put into this, and you haven't. <laughs> and we would not want you to leave without. It'll be beautiful, beautiful gardens, forest, and we welcome you to join us. Thank you. We'll take the vote now. Commissioner Bodipo Memba? Aye. LaFasso? Aye. Hoffman? Aye. Lindsay? Aye. Farrell? Aye. Buckybaum? Aye. Rogers? Aye. Juan Connolly? Aye. Yee? Aye. Ogilvy? Aye. Vice Chair Lucian? 
Aye. Chair Burke? Aye. Motion passes. Thank you. Well, that, that ends the, the public hearing portion. We'll go to the discussion only um, item number five, the downtown specific plan. Um, Mr. Sandlin, Mr. McDonald, and no colleagues. This is a, just a review and comment on item number five. Yeah. I missed the yeah. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's about the cup coming out. Oh, about the cup. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> Good evening, Chair Burke, members of the Commission. My name is Greg Salem, Senior Planner with the Community Development Department. And i um, proud to present to you the draft downtown specific plan for review and comment tonight. Um, this is over a year's worth of work. We stopped by the commission first in October of uh, 2016 with an overview, getting your initial thoughts. And then we came back to the commission in March after a community open house, our first one, um, with our initial recommendations thoughts, um, to get your input, and now this is uh, the time where we want to get your thoughts on the actual draft documents. There's many documents, plenty to read. Um, we also have our draft EIR out for review and comment, um, and uh, those comments are due November 8th. That's the end of the 45-day comment period. But um, So I'll, I'll just start with a project overview. So the downtown specific plan is implementation of the 2015 downtown housing initiative, which had a vision of, has a vision of 10,000 new places to live over the next 10 years, as well as the 2035 general plan, which is focusing growth in uh, central city, as well as our commercial corridors, to try and grow inward, um, improving our, health, our air quality, traffic, um, and getting folks living uh, closer to where they work. So um, we have pretty good general plan and zoning code, but um, to encourage and get more housing built downtown, um, we needed a variety of tools. So this, there's this specific plan, the downtown special planning district, amendments to the central city design guidelines. We'd have a new circulation plan, grid 3.0, which I'll get into a little bit. Um, we're encouraging amenities and public art to create a livable environment. Um, for current and future residents, sequest streamlining, 
um, to help make the, the process more predictable and less risk um, for development. Infrastructure study, again, to help make things predictable in terms of uh, what type of infrastructure needs there are for new development. An R Street Historic Survey. And then um, also we've identified op opportunity sites, areas where um, we anticipate residential uh, development is likely or could occur. And um, I'll get more into those sites as well. Go to the next slide. So um, the actual components and, and documents that are up for review and that are on our, our uh, website, downtownspecificplan.com, is the draft specific plan. The ordinance, which is the downtown special planning district, which is like a zoning overlay. Um, our draft finance plan, the amendments to both the central core and neighborhood design guidelines, the EIR, and then um, the survey. Next slide. So um, we've done quite a bit of outreach since 2016. As I said, stopping by here three times, we just had a community open house. Both our open houses have exceeded over 100 people. Um, met with neighborhood associations, business districts, uh, interest-based stakeholder groups where we have advocates, neighborhood association leaders, uh, developers, architects, and the like. Um, so we've really tried to cast a wide net and reach out to a variety of stakeholders, groups, um, and um, so that's really helped to inform this plan. <coughs> So the next slide, please. Um, one of the things we did with our outreach is that we um, sent mailed notices to over 6,000 property owners um, in the central city. And um, we did this because our new downtown special planning district would essentially be a zoning change. While everybody's base zone of C2 or R1B or R3A will not change, we're adding the suffix SPD. And so while our code doesn't require us to send out that many notices, I think this was our largest mailing we've ever done, um, we thought it was important to get people, let people know that what this is going on. And so I'm going to go into a, a, a fair amount of detail on, um, on this special planning district so people really understand what, what is going on. Uh, we've had over 100 phone calls, but um, I think this is a good opportunity to clarify what's being done. Um, so previous slide. Right now, we have um, an R Street Special Planning District, the Central Business District Special Planning District, and a variety of overlay zones that were that came out of an effort in the 1990s. Um, so the Central Business District and the overlay zones are, are largely empty in our zoning code. It just refers to the base zone when we updated the zoning code in 2013. And the R Street Corridor Special Planning District we're, we're folding into um, the downtown special planning district. So the result is in this area you have the downtown special planning district and the entertainment and sports center SPD, which, is, uh, which was recently adopted. So we kept that. So uh, we'll start with increased heights and densities that we're proposing with this district. Um, the C2 zone would increase the maximum height from 65 to 85 feet. Um, the reason being is for wood construction on a podium that's about as tall as you get um, is 85 feet. So we wanted to allow projects to get to that. Um, the office zone, while it's in the central business district and near streetcar, future streetcar stations, 
uh, as well as near your light rail. Um, the maximum height is 35 feet, so we wanted to increase that to 65 feet. The same with um, the residential mixed-use zone um, going to 45 to 65. We also increased, proposed to increase the maximum density of the office zone to allow 65 dwelling units an acre. So where are these zones? Um, here's a map of the C2 zone, which is in red, the OB that's in blue, and the RMX that's in yellow. And then we overlay the historic districts. You can see the, the residential neighborhoods, um, have, which are, consist largely of R3A and R1B. Those zoning designations really aren't changing at all. We're really focusing on accommodating growth in our corridors and our central business district to support transit-oriented development. The next slide, Mark Bell. <clears throat> we have um, heard from a development community after a 2013 planning and development code, we had a one-size-fits-all um, open space requirement, private open space requirement for multifamily development of 100 square feet per dwelling unit. And we've seen, as the commission has seen, multiple requests to deviate from that requirement. So we wanted, like, our parking requirements to have more of a contextual uh, context base, and so in the central business district, we would not require private open space. The development can certainly provide it, but recognizing this is the densest portion of our city. And then in our corridors, the urban um, open space district would be 25 square feet per dwelling unit, traditional 50, and, and suburban would be to our standard of 100. And this is a map of those open space districts. Um, additionally, we have heard that um, from stakeholders and the like, as well as this commission, um, to look into more maximum parking requirements to better utilize our land. Um, so what we did is we took the maximum parking requirement that's already in the central business district um, for office and applied it to all commercial uses um, in this, the central business district as well as all other parking districts, so that would be outside the red of one space per 250 square feet. That's a fair amount of parking still, but for to be in the central city, downtown, um, it felt like that's, that's enough parking. Um, we also have outlined some prohibited uses that we feel are really um, not pedestrian friendly and um, are not very friendly for transit, encouraging transit ridership. So standalone surface parking lots, outdoor auto sales, drive through restaurants, gas stations, and the like. Um, we also prohibited fuel storage yards, those fuel tanks that are, are um, right next to the Sacramento River. Um, we would like to see those sites transition. Keep in mind, any existing uses, and for those um, that have come here wondering this, if you have a standalone surface parking lot, you can continue to operate that parking lot or auto sales or what have you. If this is for new uses that are proposed, um, we would prohibit them. We also wanted to encourage adaptive reuse in our code. So we created a special provision where um, if you're converting a non-residential building to a multi-unit dwelling, we wouldn't require private open space or common open space. Um, then also, if you're converting a, um, a historic resource, a listed historic resource that's non-residential to residential, we'd allow uh, 300 
50 square feet of floor area per dwelling unit. So that would be a significantly higher density, and uh, that's kind of consistent with basically the micro units proposed in 19J. Uh, we did create, uh, maintain some R Street corridor specific requirements. The height limit map had a lot of community feedback and is very tailored to the surrounding development environment, built environment. So we kept that height limit map. Um, also, we allowed in the RMX zone, which is currently what is in the R, R Street SPD, is um, allowing a maximum density of 100 dwelling units an acre when you're within a quarter mile of light rail station. And then in the office zone, um, we wanted to make sure that we didn't have a tremendous amount of new tall office buildings along our street, keeping that requirement that if you exceed 6,400 square feet in the corridor, you, you need to have a conditional use permit. <clears throat> um, for the central business district where we allow heights of 400 feet, we thought um, that the current requirement that any development that exceeds 60 feet in height has automatic commission level review. So um, we created an exception. If you're in the central business district, you do not have to go to the commission with your project for exceeding 60 feet in height. However, you still have the thresholds of 150 dwelling units or a mat square footage of 125,000 square feet. Floor to area ratio. Um, this was, uh, we heard a lot from the community about the concerns of projects that are allowed to exceed the general plan's maximum floor area ratio. Um, and in response to that, we had developed an initial recommendation of, of capping how much you can exceed the maximum by 20%. Um, but after looking at how that would have impacted or would impact other projects, um, unintentional intentional consequences, we need to take a look at this comprehensively with more analysis. And what we're recommending is looking at doing this during our general plan update that's coming up next year, um, where we would look at FAR maximums as well as the policy for exceeding FAR altogether um, in one shot, and just really looking at how that impacts things citywide. So we have updated our central city guidelines, which so we have two, the central core and the neighborhood design guidelines. Um, one of our goals is to help maximize development along streetcar and avoid conflicts. So prohibiting driveways along the streetcar line, making sure areas near stations are clear, have a minimum clearance, um, looking at curb extensions that connect with the streetcar line, providing guidance on that, how we treat historic resources along that line, providing more context and, and what's the, uh, the type of materials and whatnot um, in those areas. Sidewalk cafes, we're concerned about how recent sidewalk cafes are starting to um, come out into the pedestrian area and make the sidewalks a, a bit too skinny. So um, we have a guideline of requiring six feet or 50% of the sidewalk devoted to pedestrian use, whichever is greater. As well as we looked at um, additional building design options to accommodate street trees looking at crime prevention through environmental design. We added guidelines for that. And then also created some guidelines for large format urban retail, uh, urban theaters, and uh, public parking garages. As for our neighborhood design guidelines, this was a pretty old document. 
Um, from the late 90s, we updated the format, added some new graphics and images, uh, updated our administration section to reflect our new regulations, our new planning and development code, again adding crime prevention through environmental design and design options for street trees. <clears throat> and we also updated some of the contents uh, to be consistent with our other design documents um, and removed outdated standards and guidelines. As for the downtown specific plan itself, um, we wanted policies that, that could help us provide a range of housing types. We really acknowledge that um, there's a challenge with the current housing market to produce housing that's affordable to moderate income. We heard that from the commission. So um, we've committed to a program of looking at any type of new alternative housing types that the market is putting forward and looking at our regulations supporting micro units and modest size housing, encouraging family size housing. We want to have a family friendly downtown um, and also uh, partnering with employers to develop employee housing. We also have a goal now for the plan area that we'd have a housing stock with at least 25% of the housing affordable to lower income households. That's consistent with the downtown housing initiative, which um, has a goal of 2,500 workforce housing units affordable to lower income households and also CADA has a 25% mandate that their housing stock is um, affordable. So we've also seen in our market analysis that construction costs are driving the cost of development, making it expensive to produce and therefore sell and rent. So efforts like the building industries, um, 5,000 new jobs in five years, supporting those efforts to address our labor shortage. So part of the downtown specific plan is the circulation element, which we call grid 3.0. This is our first attempt to comprehensively look at um, improvements to our mobility system, our circulation system, acknowledging we only have so much room between curbs. So while we want good pedestrian, bike, transit, as well as still some lanes for cars to drive, um, how do you fit all that in? You can't cram it all in in one street. So we have to prioritize the different streets where you're putting, you're concentrating on bike infrastructure versus pedestrian versus transit only lanes and the like. Um, this substantially increases our bike routes and connections. And um, we are looking at through a finance plan, a development impact fee that would help pay for a portion of these improvements. Um, I would note, though, that this development impact fee, we're going to continue to do outreach, and would, it would likely be adopted some months after the uh, downtown specific plan is adopted. Additionally, I, would, I want to note that our EIR completes the CEQA review for all these projects, which really helps to streamline them. They're going to have CEQA clearance when they, a grant opportunity comes up, anything like that. They're, ready, they're, they're a lot closer to, to getting going. In fact, we've started to do some of these projects already. Um, for the first time, we have a public art section in a specific plan, partnering with the Sacramento Metropolitan Arts Commission. We've identified locations for public art with recommended art types, and we also have supportive policies and guidelines for art and culture downtown. Um, thank you. <laughs> Our um, EIR, Environmental Impact Report, as I had mentioned, really helps to provide predictability for developers um, and, le and less risk. So I think it's going to help encourage housing and hopefully bring down the costs 
With REIR, if you're a residential or mixed-use development and you're consistent with the downtown-specific plan, no further CEQA review is required, but we have universally applicable development standards or mitigation that applies to all projects. Um, we've incorporated VMT analysis. Uh, we had a recent state law that um, changed the way you look at the environmental impacts of traffic. Instead of your comfort in your, your car, it's more of what are the actual trips that a, um, uh, a development generates. And it, so, and, and it takes into account its proximity to um, jobs and housing and, and less trips because of the jobs housing balance. So um, we've worked that into our EIR, and as a result, we will not have, we'll very rarely have a traffic study required for SECA. We will still do traffic studies for circulation to make sure everything is functional and we don't have gridlock, but it'll be little T traffic studies, not big T traffic studies. Infrastructure. Again, to predictability, what's under those streets, um, how old those pipes are, their capacity, um, is there enough to meet the needs for development right now as, as proposed? There is not. So we've looked at, looking at our opportunity sites, um, what type of enhanced infrastructure do we need? And um, as I had mentioned, looking at a development impact fee that would help to make development infrastructure finance more predictable. All development's creating an impact to our infrastructure, so all development is paying, and so if a developer um, has to put in a pipe. Uh, it's not 100% on their dime. They get some reimbursement uh, for that pipe. Um, and this would help, obviously, a current and future residents, our infrastructure capacity. So opportunity sites. Uh, we had come to the commission in October uh, with input on October to site are these opportunity sites looking at vacant, um, last October, <clears throat> vacant and underutilized sites uh, that could accommodate housing. And so this was where we spread out our growth allocation, um, where we did our traffic analysis, but we also looked at whether there's historic re eligible historic resources on those sites. Um, to help with due diligence, we looked at their capacity. So when at the end of this project, we can advertise these sites online, bring new um, housing developers in potentially, and help with their due diligence, save them time. So um, next slide. I did want to um, follow up on um, some of the many commission comments that we did receive. So, um, and just how we've worked in uh, your input or in some cases when we haven't. The central, uh, there had been recommendations that we, we call this plan the central city specific plan. Um, with a downtown housing initiative, which directed us to develop the downtown specific plan. It provided funding uh, through that initiative. We started off with that name, downtown specific plan. We developed a lot of branding. We had a website, produced a lot of documents, did a lot of outreach. And so while I, I acknowledge that people that are in Midtown are, are surprised to hear that this plan involves them, there's confusion on that end. If we were to change the name to Central city specific plan, I think that could also create some confusion. So um, with our draft EIR out, with that name throughout all our documents at this point, I, we're recommending that we proceed with the downtown specific plan. Um, shift 
to vehicle miles traveled in terms of analyzing that for uh, environmental impact. We've incorporated that in our EIR. We've addressed parking maximums in our downtown special planning district. There was a recommendation to look at childcare and senior centers. Um, very much support that. The trick with the specific plan is um, there's sometimes a lot of policies that are already in the general plan, and so we didn't want to have duplicative policies, and so we, um, we didn't particularly address that in the downtown specific plan, but already in our central city community plan that's in the general plan, it, it does address that. Connections to Riverfront, we have an entire policy section devoted to that. Um, deck Interstate 5, um, I have heard that from the community as well as this commission. Um, back in the early 2000s, we spent close to 10 years analyzing that and spent over $2 million um, developing, trying to figure out how to do that. Um, turns out that costs hundreds of millions of dollars to do. It's, it's very financially uh, difficult. And um, there's also other complications by putting columns through the freeway where the boat is because water will seep out. So, um, however, we are, uh, the city is proceeding with other connections. We've done the Q Street bike um, ramp, bike lane connection, uh, recent improvements on Capitol Mall, and then I think we're also looking at an end street crossing. Um, so there's other ways of we're looking at it connecting and um, trying to cover that freeway. <clears throat> with the freeway barriers, Grid 3.0 does identify a number of locations um, to uh, make pedestrian and bike improvements. A residential parking permit program, we, I had discussed uh, back in March a, a policy that um, where the parking manager would have the ability to um, permit or not permit residential parking permits for new residents, acknowledging we have substantially reduced our minimum parking requirements. And so working with the parking manager, we've, we've developed policy language that's broad enough to give them flexibility in cases when there's not adequate parking supply nearby that he can say that these new residents are going to have to find other ways um, to park. So, um, and the thought is also developers should provide adequate parking if they think that's what the residents need. So, um, those comments about preserving visibility from Capitol Mall, we, we, we're going to continue to have the um, height restrictions that are in our code in the C3 zone, the Capitol Mall view protection. Um, there was a recommendation for um, flexible commercial opportunities in the public realm. We have added a policy in that regard um, for uh, types of vending and stands and buskers and the like. Um, target moderate income housing. Uh, we certainly have, have taken a look at that and we hope with the, the streamlining from this plan we're, we're just going to get more supply and, and reduce the cost of construction and make things more affordable. New resources for affordable housing. Um, we're certainly as a city looking at that as to whether our plan itself can direct staff for the city for specific new resources. Um, I don't know if it's the right place uh, but council is very seriously looking at resources and, and managing the competing interests for those, those that public money. Um, we had comments about reaching out to the, a diversity of stakeholders, and I believe um, we have invited, I, I think, pretty much the whole spectrum to our um, our open houses as well as our uh, interest-based stakeholder groups. Um, 
converting existing parking garages. We have a, our policy of prohibiting new parking lots. We also, at the same time, um, encourage the conversion of existing parking lots to um, more transit-friendly uses. Strategy to reuse underutilized buildings. Um, we, with our special planning district and other policies, we're really trying to encourage adaptive reuse. Um, and so we've added some tools there. And then an expedite approval. Uh, we just continue to look at ways to help streamline the approval process while at the same time um, making sure we have well-designed uh, development that respects the adjacent neighborhood. As for next steps, next week we have a preservation commission workshop here at the same place. Um, comments are due on the draft EIR November 8th. Uh, we'll be taking our special planning district ordinance to law and legislation on November 14th, and then we'll have public hearings um, here with this commission as well as council on January of next year. That's what we're targeting. And that's my contact information. Our public website, again, is downtownspecificplan.com. We have all our documents up there for people to access, as well as market studies. Um, and that concludes my presentation. Happy to take any questions. Thank you, Mr. Sandlin, Mr. McDonald, and staff. Any commissioner questions? So I see one from Commissioner Juan Conley. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chair. Great work. And I have a, a few questions. Um, one is uh, in the specific plan about the implementation, talking about minor specific plan modifications, uh, giving the um, director the uh, right to determine if it's uh, minor and if it triggers, uh, if the request triggers specific plan uh, amendment. So I wonder, is there appeal process to the director's decision that is not uh, covered in this uh, session? You know, to tell you the truth, that, that was language that was developed by our consultants, and we're still reviewing that if that's even we have minor amendments to the, the specific plan. I, I, we don't anticipate amending the specific plan or, or really um, deviating from that frequently. So um, that's something I can, I can follow up and clarify when I come back okay. um, as far as how those amendments would occur. Um, so. Okay, that's great. Uh, if you can look into the process for amendment. And then um, second question is uh, on the dwelling units, uh, dwelling units per acre. Um, I go to the page. So it's the 224 of this report that you give a different opportunity site and then uh, um, there is acreage and then the assume the dwelling units and then uh, you summarize to see how, how much units total. And I'm looking at this particular 720Q street. Um, the site, the acreage is 0 0.1 acre and then the dwelling units is 14.4. So you look at the ratio, that's 144 dwelling units per acre. And then I look at the site, uh, the map from the zoning map, uh, it seemed like this address, 700 Q Street, that's either an OB or, um, uh, or residential. So then the maximum dwelling units is 65, 65 dwelling units per acre. 
but then the math said here it's 144. So could you please explain um, to me the discrepancy? Um, it's where the opportunity side uh, at uh, number 34. 720 Q Street, the dwelling unit is 14.4 and it's 0.1 acre. Well, so the dwelling units per acre, if that's what you assume, that's 144, right? You use the dwelling units divided by the acreage. <coughs> so if it's 144, I imagine that's a 10, 15 story buildings. But on that side, if you look at the map, that you have uh, uh, the C2 zone map and then the residential zone historic neighborhood, at that intersection, 720Q, that's either um, uh, OB office building or the residential. Either way, the dwelling units per acre is 65. It's not as high as 144. So um, you might want to look into. Yeah, well. And then the two number above, 712 Q Street, the dwelling units per acre is 132, but the 718 Q Street, the dwelling units is 55. I mean, that's just, a, uh, it's very close to sites. How come the density is so dramatically different? Um, and then I have a few quick questions on the fin <laughs> uh, finance plan. Um, so I'm looking at this one, uh, page 329 of um, the packet, um, uh, three, uh, 329 of the 995. So over here, it give a mm, overview of how much the plan area fee increase would be for class one high-rise office building. And I'm looking at the uh, proposed downtown specific plan look like uh, uh, there is a 150% of the fee increase. Um, so my question is, uh, first, does that fee increase include all the water, sewage, public facility, and park and li library? Everything you talk about in the financing plan is included, right, for this chart? Yes. And then, um, so that's correct that uh, uh, it will be a 150% uh, of a fee increase uh, if this is uh, adopted. Um, about a thousand dollars per unit so there'd be actually for some areas of the city there'd be a reduction um, 
oh, that reduction in the fee while we're charging an additional fee. So um, I, I, don't, I don't see the 150% increase. Well, I'm just looking at this uh, graph that shows the uh, plan area fee increase, um, uh, plan area fee. So maybe you can, uh, next 10%, can give us uh, a summary. How does the new fee compare to what uh, is charged right now? Sure. Um, yes. And then also, this is uh, the financing plan give us uh, um, uh, the different area comparison is how does the uh, plan area fee compare to different area in River District and in Real Yard and 65th uh, Street. Mm, but, you know, the market is so different uh, for a different area, and then the land value, land cost is dramatically different. So I think it will be helpful to have a kind of sample feasibility uh, given the fee increase or the fee that you said uh, in a new um, in a downtown um, specific plan location, um, if how does the project still can pencil out compared to different location? Um, I think that would be a helpful uh, comparison. Yes. And then uh, a question: So, is there any benefit if uh, um, it's uh, located at the opportunity site? Because I understand the opportunity side is uh, that the city is spending money to make sure the infrastructure is uh, ready f uh, for the project to take place. But in terms of saving costs for the developer, it's not uh, um, how it works, right? They still pay exactly the same fee. It's just that uh, the infrastructure is ready by the city. Well, the, the infrastructure would not be ready. Um, it would, what we've analyzed is the infrastructure need for those sites. So the developer would still have to pay for those distribution lines and connections. Um, and they would pay the fee, but then they would be reimbursed for a portion of uh, that, th their expenditure on that pipe. So um, this is, and it's, and it's one scenario what we've analyzed. I, you can have development in other sites, and that's going to change what the infrastructure needs are going to be. The benefit of, of if you have an opportunity site that you're developing on, you know what your infrastructure costs and needs will be. Um, it, it just helps you with your due diligence. It's additional information for you. Whether you're on the opportunity site or not, um, you still get the same secret streamlining um, and uh, other benefits that the, the plan brings. I see. So the benefit for you to identify um, the opportunity site is, first, they know it's a vacant site, so it's an opportunity, and second, that uh, there's more predictability in terms of the infrastructure cost. Yes, as well as if there's an eligible historic resource, right. um, there's less surprises that way. Maybe they'll take advantage of and, and utilize that resource as part of their development, reuse it, um, but it's that's something that they can know a little bit ahead of time. We also did some um, 3D models that we can advertise on those sites. We did that modeling in part to see, um, looking at the current zoning capacity and the general plan capacity to see if those projects and those densities that we would like to see work. That's what informed our, our uh, decision to increase the, the density in the OB zone and um, increase heights in certain zones. So. Um, they'll also have an idea of what type of development they could build on that site.
Okay, and all those will be released together when you release the specific plan? Yeah, I would say after adoption, um, or as we're getting close to adoption, we, we are looking at doing a, um, a web application called Housing Now. There's other web applications out there called Op Sites uh, for other cities where you can start looking at, at sites and, and, you know, shop around, so to speak. So, okay. of course, they have to be for sale, but, yeah. Very neat. And then um, one question on the amendment to the central city neighborhood design guideline, talking about the language uh, uh, changing um, either from should to shall mm -hmm. or shall to should. Um, which direction are we going more? Like, uh, is that more shall or more should? Could you give an example? Please? Oh, well, I think um, right now when I, I had mentioned the, the sidewalk cafes, uh -huh. Um, that standard is in there right now. It's six feet or, or 50 percent of the sidewalk, whichever is greater. But right now it's a should. So um, when a planner is, is looking at the sidewalk cafe and sees should, it's, it's not as strong of a policy as a shall. So um, that certainly is a nuance that planners pay attention to. Um, so I, I, as far as overall the guidelines, uh, how, if we have more shalls, and should than before. I'm, I'm, I don't believe. So I think it's 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 things that I think if we make a, sh a shift from should to shall, it's it's more just because we want to be a little bit more assertive. Okay, I see. Um, so on the J Street corridor, you know, we have a, a few uh, incidents that are exceeding the, um, the zoning limit. And then at that time, we were saying that we look into what's the plan for the J Street corridor. But a look at the map, it seems like it's still a C2 zone. So um, it's still 85 feet as the maximum height allowed, right? So there isn't any um, relaxed. Well, the, so yeah, the C2 zone would go from its current maximum of 65 to 85, just in this area. Okay, so, so uh, that's a five-story wood frame on top of podium, not further than that then? Yeah. Okay. Um, one uh, minor question. So uh, the specific plan uh, doesn't allow drive-through restaurants. So in the zoning code definition, how about the coffee shops? Drive-through coffee shops, do you categorize as restaurant or that's a separate category? That would be still, that would fall into that category. So yeah, a drive-through coffee shop would not be allowed. Would not be allowed either. Okay. Um, so the uh, specific plan, uh, the, uh, the sp uh, specific design district, now you merge all into the downtown. Um, so the real world, uh, impl uh, the impact is minimum is that a correct because you maintain the same height and the zoning code does not change and then before the <laughs> the prohibited use is still prohibited but in the entire uh, downtown area is that correct statement Did you say that again um so what's what's the real world impact for eliminating for merging the specific design district uh, oh, the special planning district? A special plan district, yes. Oh, oh for merging. Uh, well, I mean, a lot of the special planning districts, like the central business district, special planning district, really have no regulations anymore. Uh, we've transferred all the stuff that was in the special, uh, the central business district, special planning district, 
into the C3 zone because that was the zone that was there. So we, we merged those regulations in 2013 into that. We found that these overlay zones that were sprinkled around had some pretty, uh, they had some, at the time were pretty avant-garde um, regulations encouraged mixed use development, and, um, but we're actually now constraining it. So we hollowed out those zones. And so they're there by name only. And so um, with this new special planning district, we're getting rid of those. And then with the R Street corridor, we, we preserved the, uh, the kind of the, the spirit of it with the, with the height um, limits and also the prohibit or the just being careful about office uses. Um, and then also some higher densities that are allowed there that we thought might be pushing it too much um, elsewhere in the plan area. So like the RMX zone is in the R Street corridor. If you're within a quarter mile of a light road station, you can do 100 dwellings an acre. Um, having that density for all the RMX zones in the, in the area, we, we thought was just probably a bit too much. So um, we wanted to continue to allow. CADA uh, has a, a project on S Street that they're looking right now to take advantage of that provision in the R Street corridor um, and we didn't want to mess that project up by taking out that that regulation so okay thank you that's that's my question thank you chair thank you commissioner Wong Connolly commissioner Pluggy Bomb thank you for tremendous work this is a beautiful document I particularly enjoyed the sections around public art and uh, bicycle connectivity my only question is around utilities. Uh, where, would, where would, or is it even appropriate to have um, wireless telecommunications facilities in a document like this? Um, we haven't proposed any unique area recommendations um, for the special planning district on, on telecommunication facilities, but um, we certainly can. I know there's a policy under utilities for uh, Wi-Fi connectivity. My re recommendation is just to consider another policy around Citing uh, wireless telecommunications facilities in general. Okay. Thank you, Commissioner Plucky-Baum. Commissioner Ogilvie. Okay. Uh, first question is for you, Chair Burke. Are we going to? There's going to be public comments period after this, and then Commissioner comments following. Yes. So this is just question. Okay. Um, I just have a few questions. Um, I'll try to go in the order of the document, I guess. On page 133, there was mention of the need for an enhanced police services to address homelessness in the central city. And I'm wondering if the city is considering, or maybe they have um, new resources, non-police resources, or social service partnerships with the police department to address some of those non-criminal issues. I repeat myself. Sure, yeah. Mm -hmm. I was just um, commenting on a, a note in the document about the need to increase police services in the central city to address homelessness, and I was wondering if the city is also allocating additional resources um, for social service providers rather than just increased police presence. I think that's a... a a good suggestion and comment that we can look into work in. <laughs> I, I think uh, I, I think her, her comment is um, a good one. 
to, to look at more than just police services, but also social service providers and, and the like, so. Um, okay, then on page 141, there's a map of existing and proposed bike routes, and it looks like there's a pretty critical gap on L Street going east to west between 15th and 9th Streets along the Capitol. I'm not sure if that's been addressed. Right, so th this is our, our preferred bike network. Um, and we, ha we have heard from the Sacramento, uh, from Saba, <clears throat> about um, their desire to, to add additional bike facilities on L Street to connect to the Golden One Center. The trick is we, um, L Street has a, uh, is a transit priority area where we would have a dedicated transit lane on the right lane. And then we would have um, streetcar on the left side, because apparently streetcar works better on the left side. Um, then you have on-street parking. And so the trick is, if we were to add additional bike facilities, um, we'd either have to reduce the travel lane or remove the on-street parking along L Street. And um, there, that's quite a lot of on-street parking and just balancing interests. There's a lot of people that take advantage of that parking. And so um, it's just one of those things where we're, we're trying to balance the different modes and, and street infrastructure. And um, we see, you know, with Grid 3.0, we are adding more east-west connections as well as north-south. So um, we're maintaining our recommendation that was uh, accepted by council in August on this. I know the the sidewalk along N Street, you know, that's a it's actually a bikeway. It might be helpful if that was demarcated actually on the sidewalk, you know, if one side were dedicated for bikes and the other for pedestrians cuz bikes and pedestrians are often running into each other in, in that section. Right. Um moving on to the draft conditions of approval on page 241 under global climate change. Um, I mean, from what I understand in Sacramento, our major risks here are drought, flooding, and extreme heat events, and it doesn't seem like those conditions um, address either stormwater management, flood prevention, and extreme heat, reducing the urban heat island um, through green streets or, you know, building design, cool roofs, and so forth. Which page was that again? I think 241. <clears throat> So the uh, the question is whether there should be additional. Um... Correct. Maybe that's more of a comment than a question, but um, on page. That would be a comment on our EIR in that respect. So. That's something we do offline? We submit comments? or Absolutely, yes. Okay. And, and that's encouraged. If you have a comment on our EIR, um, we, 
on our website where you can pull up the IR. There's there's an address, and I, think, I believe an email also, Scott Johnson, <laughs> um, where you send in your comments. Okay. Um, on page 272, there's a map of the proposed height limits along the R Street corridor. And I was just wondering, along R Street between 2nd and 6th Streets, and also between 20th and 23rd, looks like there's a 45-foot height restriction along R, but then directly south at 75 limit or 75 feet limit along S Street. And I just was wondering the rationale for that. It seems like it would be the opposite. Um, I'd, I'd have to look into the, what that reasoning was when those height limits were developed. Um, there was quite a lot of, of stakeholder input on, on these heights, so um, I'll have to get back to you when I come back in January as far as okay. uh, why, those, why it's limited at 45 feet there. And then my last question, I was just looking at the map on page 608, the Alhambra Corridor District. I was just wondering why it doesn't extend south all the way to Broadway, south of Highway 50. That's uh, one of the original boundaries for the special planning district, and um, we have Alhambra corridor design guidelines. I, I guess it just it stopped it at the freeway as opposed to continuing on. So, um, it's worthwhile to consider extending that to Broadway. It would be a great connection to the Broadway corridor and Oak Park. And okay. well, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, as a preface, thank you, Commissioner Ogilvie, for clarifying questions first, public comment statements later. It's a good practice, and I appreciate it. So, questions. Uh, Mr. Sandlin, I asked you a couple days ago when I submitted writing yesterday, I asked about the graph on page 74 that talks about the imbalance of planned and proposed projects toward the above moderate income level relative to the demand and the other part of the graph. And I asked for a little data background because I wanted to know if the universe of planned and proposed projects, what its relationship was to the, uh, to the demand. Um, really, the thrust of the question is, are we overbuilding uh, for above moderate income or is the demand size of the pie so much larger that the fact that the plan and proposed projects are two and a half times not material because the universe of demand is much, much larger than the universe of planned and proposed projects. Any, uh, any, any info back from the consultant on what the data source was? Well, the data source was, was um, all planned and approved projects or pipeline entitled projects, and it was around 12,000 units. Um, with that said, uh, that there's, I, I don't know if you, one could overbuild those units. I think the depth of the market is only, is limited for above moderate, really. And, and I think what that graph really gets to is you have to build housing for all income groups if we're going to meet our, our growth projections. I, I understand that. So you said that the quantitative universe for the, Plan and proposed projects portion of the graph is roughly 12,000. 
Can you tell me what the quantitative universe is for the um, for the demand part of the of the graph? Is it also twelve thousand? Incidentally, I noticed throughout the plan I started to read one place that talked about ten thousand units, then talked about ten thousand units, but not ex not including something else, which I think was the rail yard. Then somewhere else it said something about twenty three thousand units. I, mean, I don't want to you know conflate the goals with the demand, but do you have the actual packet page? Um, 74 of the uh, specific plan. No, page 74 is just the graph. Um, right, of the specific plan, but of the overall packet, do you have that? That's, it's page 74 of the 995 page packet. <clears throat> so, the plan projects, this yellow or or green line, um, is 12,000, and so we have 30% of the overall growth was, is projected to be uh, attributed to above moderate income households. So it's proportional. Proportional. I, I don't have the exact number, but um, it would be proportional to that 12,000 units that are, are planned. So um, it's we have. What is entitled is significantly more than um, what is anticipated would be the buyers and renters over the next 20 years, um, what they would be purchasing and renting. So um, I don't know if that gets to your question. Um, does. Um, moving along. So earlier in your presentation, you talked about a goal of 25% of new units being for, I can't remember the term you used, low-income, affordable. I know low-income is not very low-income or extremely low-income. I think low-income is, uh, what, low-income is 50 to 80% of area median income. Anyway, how are we, we going to get to that goal? Yeah, it, I think it starts with a goal. We can measure, we can look at how affordable, that way we can look at our, our housing stock and see how we're doing. Um, but uh, it's gonna take a variety of, 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 of resources, not just local, but state, and hopefully someday federal, um, to address that. that. That housing stock needs subsidies. The market really doesn't produce low-income housing. Um, by itself that that takes a tremendous amount of, of subsidies so um, aggressively pursuing those subsidies and also making sure that we preserve the housing that is already affordable on the grid so um, okay no I understand I just just was wondering how specific it was in the plan and you've answered the question um, um, you indicated in your presentation that the finance plan is going to follow the, the specific plan by some number of months, so we're not going to wrap up on the financing plan um, in January of 2018, if I understood your presentation. Oh, we would adopt the finance plan. Every specific plan has to have an infrastructure finance plan. Um, it's the fee it's the I'm development sorry. impact fee okay. itself, the ordinance and resolution f to establish that. Um, 
as Commissioner Juan Connolly has, has mentioned, development is very expensive to do here. Are we, are we hitting the right amount? Are we, this is really, this fee is, is really to help make infrastructure more predictable and help development. Um, but we're going to need to do a, a, quite a lot of outreach talking to the development community to see what the impacts would be, how we roll it out, um, and clarify the reimbursement mechanisms and all that stuff. So it's going to take longer than January. Okay, I'm sorry. I misunderstood that nuance between the fee and the plan. And certainly it's notable the, the high-level sort of overriding uh, slide in the 995-page presentations on 285. And what it basically says is of roughly half a billion dollars in infrastructure uh, plan to be financed, 10% comes from that fee you're talking about, 20% comes from other fees, mm -hmm. and 70% comes from other sources, roughly divided between other sources of city funding, maybe that's general maintenance funds and other funds we already have, and the other is, quote, outside sources, which I think probably means federal grants. Um, but I, I do think, my question is, is that rough framework something you're confident about at this juncture, or do you anticipate you know, substantial jiggering of the numbers between now and okay. No, now I, I, we're feeling pretty good about that. Okay. Those assumptions and numbers. Okay. Um, I understand you, 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 how some of this works, and you you elaborated on in your responses to Commissioner Wong Connolly's question, and, and I do appreciate that the the fee gets driven when somebody uh, gets their entitlements, files their map, puts shovels in the ground. And it's somewhat determined by how projects progress, and there's some degree of unpredictability. I understand how it creates, from a developer standpoint, predictability in the sense of I pretty much know what I'm going to have to pay for my share of the broader infrastructure, and I'm not suddenly breaking, going for my entitlements and realizing, oh my goodness, the 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 sewer line for blocks and blocks and blocks needs work, and now suddenly I've either got to pay for all of it and hope one day I get paid back or, or something else. I understand what my part of it is attached to the fee, and that, that makes my costs more predictable, and that helps me. Um, with all that said, um, you know, how, how I, I was thinking about bonding. There's a, there's a discussion in the plan about the California Statewide Community Development Authority, and there's some bonding discussion, and there's some... Uh, uh, enhanced infrastructure financing district discussion and uh, some community reinvestment, CIRA, whatever. The, one of the two big new tax increment financing devices that the legislature's created in the last couple years uh, that, as, as I understand best, people are getting close to pulling the trigger on, but nobody's quite done it yet. The, the question is, where do you see that figuring into this plan? Is that something that development fees can can relate to, to, uh, to front more financing for development earlier, or is the fact that development fees are a somewhat unpredictable source of revenue related to development, which is not to the satisfaction of a bond underwriter because they want to know the regularity of the revenue. So if, if development fees are off the table as a source of bond financing, um, is there any bond financing in that plan that's, that we might see or or where does that stand? Uh, that's a good question. I think um, 
to do a bond, you'd have to find a, a, a good, reliable revenue stream. And um, if it's, could you, we've we've talked about the potential of doing um, CFDs, uh, finance districts, where property owners are are paying into this um, to develop. Uh, but I think it's it could be tricky in an area where you have such a huge diversity of property owners, um, unlike rail yards or other new growth areas where you have just a few that agree to it. So that's always been the challenge with downtown um, is you have all these little sites. So um, yeah, we're, we're happy to entertain any, any creative infrastructure financing solutions. EIFDs and the, uh, the CREAs, I don't know what, quite how you say it. The revitalization and investment areas. With our redevelopment debt, paying down that, and then um, just our our city's percentage of property tax revenue uh, that we're pretty much going to rely on. I, I don't know if we can rely on other state and county uh, revenue. It would, it would be hard to do. West Sacramento has actually done an EIFD because okay. they get a larger share of the property tax revenue than most cities do. Hmm. So um, they've hopped on that. But, um, yeah, it's to find ways to finance infrastructure uh, other ways would be great because it would help to reduce the cost of development and therefore make housing more affordable. So um, any type of creative infrastructure uh, ideas uh, we're, we're certainly open to. You know, on the opportunity sites. Um, oh, yes. Ah, what? We do have a, a, a new program, SKIP. Statewide Community Infrastructure Program, where a developer, <clears throat> property owner can actually um, create their own finance district, assessment district, just for that property. And so they take the property tax revenue to pay off a bond. Uh, you have to have a certain size of um, infrastructure costs and impact fees to justify hiring all the attorneys and engineers to, to create this finance specifically for a development project, but um, it is something that some development projects have looked at and, and could be utilized downtown. And the revenue source is property tax increment? Yeah. And Just for that property. And then it's pooled together by a statewide bond issuer. Um, I forget the name of it. Private that, activity, bond authority, tax exempt bonds, business purpose, yeah. all that stuff. I can send the you Internal Revenue Code Section 142. Sorry. Um, opportunity sites. So there's a map on page 192. There's a list of five or six priority investment areas narratively expressed on page 199. And then there's that parcel by parcel table that I think Commissioner Juan Connolly was asking about on page 200, 200, 222. Yeah. Um, are all those fun, uh, interrelated? I, I must confess I had a hard time relating the map on page 192 to the list. Are, are those the same thing, or do those, do those interrelate? Well, so <clears throat> our infrastructure analysis, we used our opportunity sites as um, basically the, the basis for seeing what our infrastructure needs are. When you have a sewer line, it's where is the development? You can't just assume a certain amount of sewer di distribution line any old place, it's it's where is, you know, where are the flushing toilets? 
<laughs> so that's that's what impacts the line and, that, and all that. So we looked at the necessary infrastructure to serve the opportunity sites, and then we went one step forward to look at what areas would you get your most bang for your buck in terms of if you were to invest in infrastructure strategically, proactively as a city, um, where would you maximize the amount of housing units and commercial development, commercial square footage? So um, in the event that we, particularly the federal government, decides to really put out some grants for infrastructure or some other type of windfall, and we wanted to find ways to strategically invest to help um, encourage development, provide additional capacity, we would, those areas would be a good starting point. Is there an interrelationship between those areas you describe and these density, parcel by parcel density references that Commissioner Wong Connolly? I'm trying to create, I'm right, trying to connect the, the dots the, between the, the assumed, regular. The assumed density in those opportunity sites help determine what type of, how big of a water pipe you need and how much, of your, what is your sewer capacity and um, yes, so the, the intensity of the development on that site correlated to what type of infrastructure you needed. So am I correct, we're not changing the allowed density on those sites, we're just anticipating what we think will ultimately get built so we can anticipate what infrastructure we have to pay for and build. Right, so when we, we have a, the general plan as well as SACOG, we have a 20-year projection for this area of 13,400 sites. So we, had to, we decided to take that growth allocation for the whole area and actually try and allocate it to the different opportunity sites. And so in the central business district, we assumed a higher density of, I forgot, of, of around, for those sites there, around 160 dwelling units an acre. Along the corridors is 100, and then out in some of the peripheral areas, maybe 30. So we tried to spread out that allocation using those sites that we thought development was most likely going to occur. And so doing that informed our infrastructure analysis or traffic analysis and all that. So um, in some cases, I think when you look at that table, maybe that density is a little high because in doing our allocation, it didn't quite perfectly correspond to the zoning density limits. So that might be why there was a discrepancy. Makes sense. It, it does make sense. Continuing. So when we're, um, when we're uh, making alterations to the zoning code with the different rules for the special planning district, um, and say, for example, we're increasing the height limit in the C2 zone from 65 to 85. We are not actually changing anything else. We're not changing the uh, density allowance or if it's non-residential, the FIR. I understand there was that FIR issue you took off the table. But, and, and I know if you really drill down on those, you, you see some of those, especially those corridor areas, you say, well, you know, it's not you know, a lot of potential units the general plan says you can have. but mm -hmm. And then you start to imagine the height and the setbacks and the mass and, yes, the open space, and you ask yourself, how in the heck could you fit that in? So we're not changing any of these density rules. We're just, we're just, we're just changing some of the physical space limitations to 
to account for some of the stuff that we've previously already allowed in our plan. Is that a fair statement? Yes, we, we increased the density for the office space zone or the office zone, but that's within the, the density of the general plan. So all, all our changes have been consistent with what's already projected in the general plan. So, second. Okay. Um, one last question about R Street, and I'm sorry to do this preface. So when we uh, overhauled the zoning code in 2013, we pat ourselves on the back for eliminating overlay zones, and now we're doing an overlay zone. Like we took away the CBD overlay zone and just called it C3 and got to the same way. Of course, now we're doing it again. But do I understand correctly that we are eliminating the R Street Special Planning District overlay zone, but we're just sort of moving the rules into a new special planning district ordinance, but we're really, for all intents and purposes, not, not changing the rules that much. We're just doing it under a different framework. Yeah, so, so the whole area is, is now under that single special planning district, and we took some of the rules in the R Street special planning district that we thought were still relevant and useful and created a little subsection in the ordinance that called out specific R Street provisions. But otherwise, we tried to just yeah, have one single special planning district, with the exception of the Entertainment and Sports Center, SBD. Appreciate it. And apropos to Commissioner Ogilvie's question, it is, it threw me for a loop that the height limits are more rigorous in the R Street corridor area, and this really came forward a year and a half or so when we did 1430 Q Street, which I like to call son of powerhouse, um, which thankfully is breaking ground already, that it had a height limit we I think we had to do a deviation for, and every parcel on every side of it but for the south was R5 and had no height limit. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I look forward to the history of our street and why, why we do. I guess it has something to do with the fact that it was this old industrial zone and we want to retain the character, which is, you know, sort of the height limits right. apropos to a, a, an industrial zone of that area. But yeah. And it's on the edge of downtown or the central business district, um, but also near residential areas just directly south, too, so the it's a it's a transition area, but um, I can get into more how they did this patchwork quilt of height limitations, and perhaps some of these are are, are outdated, so we can look into adjusting them potentially. Okay, and I'm sorry. One last question: When we were talking about bikes a moment ago, you mentioned the city council decided something in August. Can you can you state what that was? Grid 3.0 went to council to be accepted. Um, or adopted, so to speak, but it didn't. It wasn't adopted as a project with seek review, so to speak. So this, what we're doing with this specific plan is we've incorporated Grid 3.0 and, and we have it under our EIR and it's adopted as official city policy. Understood. Appreciate. So I would say it's accepted as a study by council in August. But you're viewing it as a, in essence, policy decision on the part of the city council. No. I don't think that's an unreasonable assumption, if I may. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Commissioner LaFalso. Commissioner Kaufman. Thank you, Chair Burke. Um, Greg, it's on page 314, 995 page packet, table 5-1. I just want to follow up on a question that Commissioner LaFalso started on. 
Um, $510 million estimated improvement cost total build out for infrastructure. Uh, third column from the right, other funding sources, other $172 million. So a third of this project's finance plan is undefined. It's basically other people's money federal government, funding sources, whatever. The question is, what has been our history in securing funds like this? Uh, have we gone, that's question one. Question two, have we gone and identified uh, sort of the universe of such funds that might be available to us? So we'd have some sense of got a one in, we got a 2% shot at, at getting some of this money. Talk about that for a minute or two. So this, this plan was prepared by EPS, Economic Planning Systems. Um, and it's common for them to have this, this other category and um, common for a finance plan to have that when you really haven't identified a specific funding source. So I, I think this, Having the other category is is not unusual. Um, I can I can take a look and see how that compares to rail yards or river district, um, other urban areas. Um, and as far as uh, what the likely funding sources would be, I can follow up with you on that. What our our consultant is anticipating. I'll follow up with comments during the comments section. But clearly, this has implications. How we treat this plan and fall back right that's all I have thank you thank you Commissioner Kaufman uh, colleagues I'm gonna take uh, Commissioner Bodipa member and just because it's getting late I want to go to public comment I know people are taking time out of busy schedules to be here uh, uh, Commissioner Bodipa member thank you chair Burke I'll try to be quick because definitely want to hear public comment um, I wanted to go back, uh, Mr. Sandlin, to the Sac Valley Station master plan conversation that we had. There was a couple of statements made there about about density, and one one statement that was made there. They said basically twenty for every twenty thousand people per square mile equals a vibrant neighborhood, and that was kind of a correlation that was presented to staff as related to that specific project. And I realize that's outside of the downtown specific plan area. But I'm just wondering whether a similar metric was used either for the overall specific plan or for certain uh, designated specific plan areas uh, to, I guess, evaluate the, the vibrancy that, that we appear to be looking for as a part of this plan. You know, I, <clears throat> I think Greg Taylor right. presented the Sac Valley station and I, I wasn't involved, I, I wasn't able to See that? So he had a. Uh, so, so there's there's a couple of statements that were made in that presentation. They looked at a couple of comparative areas, um, one in Denver, one in San Francisco. I can't remember the other, and they it correlated uh, again this this density balance to a vibrancy of the neighborhood. The second one being for if there's six jobs for every resident in, a, in an area, hmm. again, it equals a a vibrant 
job and economic uh, balance. And, and given the proximity of that plan to this plan area, I'm just wondering whether or not there's been some coordination between the two and whether those ratios are reflected in, in the implementation of the SAC. We didn't, we didn't have that, that type of uh, ratio looked at for the plan area, but um, that's intriguing. I could talk to Greg Taylor about it. And maybe I can add some more feedback as it relates to comments. I definitely want to hear public comment on that. Definitely happy to see the increased uh, uh, density in certain parts and definitely the increased height. Um, the other question I just have is, is more of a, a large-scale hypothetical question, but given in the news the discussion of recruiting and attracting large-scale uh, uh, campuses and of that of I won't, I won't name anything specific, right. um, but does this plan set Sacramento up to be a competitor in that type of market for future uh, campuses for, for large-scale corporations, given you know, the, the jobs gap that seems to exist in, in the region? This, does this revised plan really put this position to attract not necessarily some of the, the, the current ones, but maybe that make uh, other other industries are looking for urban densified uh, campus development. I think, I mean, this, this, this plan certainly helps support transit, transit ridership, which I had heard was, was one of the um, important factors in, in relocating. Affordability, we're, um, as a city, we, we do have increasing rents, but um, I think we're, we're committed to, to making our housing as affordable as we can. So um, us trying to address affordability and, and create a, a mix of incomes downtown um, or maintain it is uh, is pretty critical. So, um, but and then I guess one other question: You talked about the twenty five percent affordable low income uh, goal uh, for the downtown specific plan. Would that consist of only new units, or is that cumulative? Cumulative, yeah. It, it wouldn't be an affordability requirement, right? But it's it's kind of a something to measure off of right it's a metric um, too. and then also we we have committed with the downtown housing initiative 2500 um affordable places to live over 10 years so consistent with that so um those are all my questions for now uh thank you chair burke thank you commissioner what member i'll go to the public comment right now um any members of the public who want to speak, there's comment cards in the back. Please bring it to the Commission Secretary. We'll start with Teresa Wagner, then we have Kate Birch, then Margaret Buss. Hi, my name is Teresa Wagner, and um, I have um, what I consider affordable housing in Midtown Sacramento. I own two apartment buildings, one at 25th and I, and one at uh, tw on 23rd between I and J, a total of 63 units. Um, my rents are in the range of 630 to 730. And when we're talking about affordable housing, uh, the 25%, what's going to be affordable, what's not going to be affordable, and so forth, certain things that affect the affordability of housing is fees, assessments, changing in the tax plan, um, Believe it or not, just the trolley going down J Street will affect one building that I owned by $3,000. So 
my question is by changing to the um, this new special planning district will there be changes in fees assessments whatever you want to call them that will increase it will force me to increase my rents is what I guess I'm asking <clears throat> um, a common fear with a rezone is will your property taxes go up as a result of that that rezone and um, I, I think it's that that happens at when the property is sold so there's no uh, adjustment that I know of that affects your well your but over the years taxes. over the years landscape lighting libraries all these things have come on to apartment buildings right. owners that uh, I'm just asking do you know of anything no. that is going to come on as when you're talking about uh, lack of money for Right. things are you going to dig into already existing people and um, I mean I have all studio units I consider them affordable and I hear across the board that there's nothing in Midtown under a thousand dollars and that's just not true Ms. there Ms. still Wagner. is uh, just, I, I will say that if you could follow up with the staff okay. privately you, you do have one minute and 13 seconds of your comments left I don't want to okay. into your public comment time but you definitely could follow up with the staff offline but we have no planned assessments and if you were to be assessed you would be voting uh, as part of that assessment so you'd be okay yeah thank you thank you so much Kate Birch hi thanks for your presentation it was very informative um, I am I guess something of a rarity I own my own single-family home in Midtown um, I really loved hearing about all this. I love high-density housing, though I don't live in it myself. Um, I especially liked hearing that there's an emphasis on uh, family housing because as a parent of more than one child, I know it is hard to find three- and four-bedroom housing. One of the concerns that I have and that I would have liked to hear more about is um, parking, especially as a parent of two kids who go to different schools that are not accessible by a single direct public transit line or school busing. Two cars is incredibly critical to getting our kids to school on time and after school events, all those things. Um, and one of the things that is harder and harder to find is housing with more than one parking spot. So I think that as you're putting in requirements for parking minimum or maximum, whatever it is, try to think about for family housing and three or four bedroom units, how much parking a family actually needs for the cars that they need to move their family around the uh, large and fabulous city that we live in. Thank you. Thank you. Harvard Bus. Then Dmitry Janorski. Members of the commission, um, and I, I very much appreciate the presentation. Helped clarify a lot of things. I've not yet read through the whole staff report yet. I also want to compliment Mr. Sunland on his openness in general in all discussions that we've had. I'm a member of the Boulevard Park Neighborhood Association board. I'm not speaking on behalf of the board, but I can tell you. But one part of the out, your very extensive outreach that I think would be helpful to extend further. When everybody got the letters saying that there was a new zoning overlay, nobody understood what it was, and if there were a way to direct. The people, we, we've gotten a lot of comments from our members 
if there are a way to direct people to a simple summary that explained the ramifications. There's particular concern because, and I, I appreciate the explanation of why it's called the downtown plan instead of Central City, but there is a concern in Midtown of conflating the development in downtown with what would be desirable in Midtown. So something that made very clear that there still will be distinctions would be extremely helpful. Um, my only other comments are as an individual. Um, that affordable housing goal, the 25%, that's aspirational then, I gather, um, because in the past we have seen waivers every time there have been affordable housing requirements somehow or another they get waived and we would like to maintain that mix that's part of the excitement of being downtown so I'm hoping that you're able to build in things that um, that provide that um, also the height limits um, for this C3 I think you had once asked me if the neighborhood associations would accept some of those higher developments I think those are acceptable the, our problems are with the deviations that would double that if you kept those height limits that's fine, and if this can encourage density, development of density at those height limits, we probably can live with that, but it's the, it's the individual deviations that um, then become the rule that are a concern. So, thank you. Thank but, you. Uh, Margaret, I can follow up and present to your organization if you'd like to, to clarify the... If you even could give us a one page, a one or two page summary that we could disseminate. Also, oh, I meant to say, uh, Nextdoor is a very useful Thing for getting things out to the public and if you have access to that or if you want us to put it out on it but some simple explanation we'd be happy to send it out Dmitry Janorski and Kevin Cole yeah you may call me Dmitry J um, I'm a condominium owner downtown one of the things I'd like to see included in the plan is stuff like grocery stores um, you know, I'm, I'm a city kid, and one thing in San Francisco where I grew up is I appreciated playgrounds that had signs, no adults allowed unless accompanied by their children. If you're having family housing downtown, I think that that's very important. And another thing, um, weekend and night bus service. I am someone who rents out the parking space to my condominium. I do not want to own a car. Uh, and I would like to be able to take the bus home after 8 o'clock at night and go someplace on Sunday without renting a car or hiring Lyft. Um, I'd also like to apologize for the other, you know, I'm at Riverfront Plaza. The Homeowners Association president was here and stuff, but obviously they left from lacking time. It would be great to do a presentation. We have 91 units, 200 residents, and... You know, I'd like to thank you for taking into consideration the amenities needed for people to comfortably live downtown. Thank you. Thank you. Kevin Cole. Anna Maria Pasquals. Whitney Lehman. Oh, pardon me. Okay. This is Ana Maria. Sorry. Hello. Uh, thank you for the opportunity of comments. And um, I'm concerned that in a lot of this planning, I don't hear enough about what's being done to provide bathrooms, public bathrooms. 
uh, it's becoming pretty messy downtown, midtown area, where people have no choice but literally to go into the bushes along the sidewalks. That's one concern. The other concern is, you know, Sacramento's pretty unique. It has family-friendly atmosphere, neighborhoods, nice neighborhoods. And, you know, it's not San Jose, and it's not L.A., and it's not San Francisco. And if we're not careful with these heights, getting the buildings going higher and higher because, you know, you have a, you have a, a plan that says only go so far, and then pretty soon somebody sneaks in and puts one a little higher and a little higher, and pretty soon we just don't have a limit almost. And I, I would really be sad to know Sacramento as just another city of suburbs. And I think if you're not careful, we're not careful, we're headed that way. Also, the idea about what affordability is, I would like you to really look at that because I don't think that there's plenty, that there is enough affordable housing in the Sacramento area. So thank you for your time. Thank you. Winnie Lehman. Oh, sorry. Stella Levy. I was just helping Ana Maria for a moment. I was just, uh, so I'm a homeowner in Midtown. I live in Boulevard Park at 20th and G. And I was just wondering if there are any commissioners or planners who will be affected um, by the zoning change. Anybody? Do you live in Midtown or own, own a house? Somebody, so one person. Um, that's important to me because you're not subject to your own um, rezoning, which um, does seem a little unfair. Um, also, um, I don't know how residents were chosen to kind of solicit input, but um, I didn't hear about this until luckily the Boulevard Park Neighborhood Association put a note about it in the newsletter. So I emailed Tom Buford, who sent me this letter on, uh, it was mailed the 29th of um, September, I just got it, announcing that we're being rezoned. And I have to say, I do, looking at the maps, I do support um, uh, high-density development in the old the existing special planning districts. I think that's great for the most part. Um, I do see some of that spreading out into Midtown, Yamini 19J, that sort of monstrous building next to Kupros on um, Capitol and L, and that is, we also have an alley infill project in Boulevard Park, and um, you know, I can just sort of see what's happening. By rezoning this, it just seems like it's opening the door to let developers um, put more high-density projects into Midtown. Um, so if you're like myself and you have this house, you've worked very hard for your whole life, and um, right across the street is a little strip of commercial buildings. You know, who's to say that those won't be sold? And I'm going to have the next Yamini right out my window blocking my, my sun and my view. Um, parking is certainly an issue. Um, even with a trolley, something that makes it easier for residents to get around that also encourages... Uh, people from out of town, certainly Midtown fills up Thursday, Friday, Saturday night with people from the surrounding areas who park in the residential neighborhoods and walk a few blocks or maybe will walk a few blocks to jump on the trolleys. And there's no enforcement um, that I can tell of parking restrictions in our neighborhood. I, I really rather, I don't see the police out there very much. Um, the same with CEQA mitigation when it comes to actually developers developing projects. Um, if there's 
some CEQA mitigation put into place, who enforces it? I have not seen that in our neighborhood when developers decide to work on the weekends trenching and they don't stick to their dust suppression plan. There's very little recourse for um, neighbors. You know, the, the city project managers aren't very interested. The Air District doesn't come out on the weekends. Um, so I'd just like you to think about that and living next door to it, um, some of the difficulties that are involved. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, Thomas Permato, Stella Levy, Ralph Aldridge. Thomas Plum, P-L-U-M-B. Oh, pardon me, yeah. forgive me. Uh, I'm just impressed how willing you are to change the whole concept of midtown and downtown and conflate it all into downtown because you're really inviting a lot of confusion, but if you want to continue along that line, it's probably too late to change. My question is about uh, the intermix of uh, pedestrian, biking, and traffic in Midtown, and the lack of any clarity of where this plan is going to take us in that in that regard, and whether you are already working on those issues. Is there a particular part of your your uh, department that is working on that, particularly engineering studies, as to what is the safest way to get all three of those things moving along without uh, impacting on the other in an adverse way? And particularly, I'm worried about that in the alley. We've been talking about alley activation for years, and still they have not even come up with anything concrete about how to handle the intermix of all three of those elements in the alley. Is that being worked on? May I ask if that's being worked on by the, by the uh, planning department at all? Do you have an engineer assigned to that? And is that going to be addressed before suddenly we suddenly hear that somebody's got an idea and we don't know what to do and respond to it? The staff will follow with you offline. Do um, you have any more? You have more comments, sir? No. Oh, no. Thank you. Uh, Ralph Aldrich, Roger Prescaras. Can you tell me if I have an apartment building that's zoned R? 3A multifamily, if that zoning will change with the downtown specific plan or from something you said earlier, I thought you said that existing zoning would stay the same, so I'm just a little bit unclear about how my property zoning would be affected. Right, so um, the residential areas of R1B, R3A are not being changed. They have the, the R3A? R3A, yeah. So there's there's no changes that's in the special planning district that would affect the R3A zone. So what is it? What would it mean to be under the special planning district with that particular zoning? Um, not a whole lot. But since we are applying the special planning district across the whole area, we have to add the, the ending. So the R3A dash SPD, which means special planning district. So would it mean that I could build additional units that I can't build now because of the 36 unit per acre restriction? It wouldn't change your development rights for R3A, so you would be under the same restrictions that are on the R3A zone of 36 units an acre, and um, yeah, that, that really doesn't change the picture for R3A at all. And so the new zoning, the new higher density is for areas outside of where I am, or I thought it was yeah, for the whole so area? Yeah, so more, more so along our, our corridors, J Street and um, 
all the all the commercial corridors that have commercial zoning c2 um, office and residential mixed use so it's mainly we're focusing our changes on that those areas thank you thank you any more public comment on this item item number five good evening so uh, I received this info I don't know if somebody mentioned it, but it said Tuesday, 12th. Okay, I call to correct this myself. And um, I live in uh, in an area which is uh, R1B, and it's going to be changed maybe in R1B, SPB, something like that. Anyway, uh, I'm right now just facing, I'm the witness and the victim as well, of a development that was approved by the city last year, it's a three-story building just behind me, it's massive to me, it's just going to be a big wall just behind me, suddenly. And uh, there was some um, agreement on that to be followed for that, for that uh, development on this on that area, like I say, uh, dust, abattement, they don't really do it. My neighbor had to provide water uh, last weekend, uh, and they were working also last weekend, when uh, he was requested not to work over the weekend. So if we are planning to do this kind of development in the city and not uh, paying attention to what the contractor or the developer do, I have to call every other day about those kind of development, dust, noise, uh, you know, a pile of dirt. Actually, this area is considered a hazardous material in that area, you know, and it should be covered. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm dealing with, and um, the height, like I say. N next, it's that uh, I would like to know how much office space actually are vacant in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, you know, the business area, because it seems to me that they are not full, you know. So we are planning to build more and more, but are they already full? So that's the question. And what are we looking also for affordability, rental unit? I've, I've the luck, or I've the, because I work for it, you know, that I own my house, I don't have to pay, you know, rent. But I would not be able to live where I live now. I would not be able to afford it, okay? So what are we talking about affordability when we talk about range and things like that. And uh, when I look at the existing infrastructure, the sewer was to be re was replaced in, uh, in our place, in our area right now, uh, last week le, or so, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, it, it, it showed that it was not adequate for that development, just for those buildings that were added. And we have also a high voltage line, which is uh, close by that we are kind of trying to modify because it gives some uh, people, uh, you know, some energy, you know, uh, frequency. That's the lady here. And uh, she's very concerned about that, and we're going to have a meeting. So we have all those problems already existing. Adding height, because the higher you are, the closer you get from that high voltage line, for instance, it creates more risk. So that's, that's what it is, and uh, the traffic, of course, parking. Thank you so much, sir. 
Um, if everyone has three minutes. Yeah, well, anyway. Thank you so much for your comments. And um, any additional public comment? See, seeing none, I just want to. The public comment, sir? Please step forward. Uh, Yes, I stayed in Fremont Bend, uh, Sacramento, past 40 years. I lived all over Sacramento. Downtown is my best place. I walk to work. All my jobs are here. I'm a security officer. And uh, with city capital, it should not be like the north area, south areas. Here's what my proposal is. Uh, since we absorbed the arena, will you please put all the homes out where the arena used to be? There's plenty of white areas out there to build homes. But downtown is nice for me. I walk all over, I'm a security officer, and I just live the way it is now. It's not broke, don't want to fix it. So I, like I say, I'm against the program, put homes here, put them in the arena used to be or everywhere else. But this is the capital. This is not like north area, south areas. This is very special to me. I've been here 40 years, and I just appreciate it. And uh, thank you for letting me speak. Thank you much, so much, Mr. Uh, Phil Burke. Thank you. Um, Seeing no other public comment, we'll call the, close the public comment uh, period right now. Um, just to radiate, I know there's a lot of questions on individual property and the process. So if uh, Greg and, and Jim, if you could just uh, remind folks where they could get uh, information, I believe there's a website um, and ways to contact the city. Um, I know we're in a limited amount of time during public comment, but there's obviously staff available to answer any resident questions. So my, my contact information is, is right up there. That's my direct line and my email. Um, unfortunately, I did not bring business cards with me. Apologize. I need to start putting that everywhere. Um, so, but yeah, uh, feel free to, to send me, email me questions, and um, I'd be happy to, to get back to you directly. Thank you so much. Uh, question for Commissioner LaFaso. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Mr. Stanlin, I'm sorry, looks like you're I was going to address this to you, but yesterday my next door neighbor asked me if our block was being rezoned. And I hadn't finished reading the staff report, so I said no. And I have to go back to my neighbor and tell him I was wrong. But the point of the of the comment is um, I mean obviously there's a lot going on here and there's there's a public communication issue. Your, 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 your colloquy with Ms. Buss makes it clear that there's a subset of neighbors who are active participants through their associations who are understanding what's going on and able to clearly make their points. But I, 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 I must say, I myself missed the mailing. And um, I've never had that happen to me before. And uh, I, I don't know what the answer is, but... Um, I guess I'm going to respectfully disagree on this changing the name of the thing. Um, I, I I don't understand why the documents can't call it the central city specific plan and and put a parenthetical behind, underneath that says formally the downtown specific plan. 
Um, given the degree of confusion out there, um, I think I think that would help. One, one piece of the puzzle relates to that that I drilled down on. Do I understand that the area to which the fee would apply is a smaller subset of the area and is, in fact, more actual what people think is downtown? I thought I saw that in, um, in the document. Uh, <clears throat> the downtown transportation impact fee uh, is, takes up about a third of the plan area, mainly the central business district and that side of the, of the grid. Um, but the uh, new development impact fee we're, we're looking at would, would cover the entire area. Okay. Okay. I, I don't know how much um, of the central city is zoned RMX, OB, or uh, C123 or 4. Um, but w when Ms. Buzz asks for a, a, a one or two pager, somehow the message has to get through that if you don't live in OB, RMX, or one of the C's, Density rules in your parcel are not changing. Right. And somehow there got to be some ways. And I understand, you know, we, we, we tend to, to communicate clearly what is, and we often don't com communicate clearly what's not. And people scratch their head and go, does that apply to me? And they want someone to just say, no, it doesn't. Now, obviously, there are lots and lots of residential uh, uh, units on parcels that are C2. Um, my favorite example is when three years ago we actually rezoned a parcel on 3rd and U Street from R3A to C2 so we could allow more units to be built on it. And it's the, it was the craziest thing we ever did. But it underscores just, you know, th th just because you walk down the street and you see residential, uh, 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 residential frontage doesn't mean that it's a residentially zoned parcel. Um, and but the good news is at least people know what their own parcel is owned, um, and even if we could get that cleared up, right. um, I, I'm I'm I guess I've got a couple of the comments, but I really wanted to drive home this PR issue. Um, I, I I guess the last thing I'm going to say before I yield temporarily is to, to the individual who had the concern about how many of us live in the potential downtown specific plan area, and I'm the only one to raise my hand. There are. 60, 70 discrete neighborhoods in Sacramento. There's 13 of us. Five years ago, the city council doubled the size of this commission to try to expand neighborhood re representation. Every single time we have a controversial matter in front of us, somebody says, who here is personally affected? There's no way we're ever going to uh, get somebody who lives in the area where everything, it's just, it's just not going to happen. And one of my colleagues is going to admonish me afterward for even telling you where I live because we're supposed to be neutral to the places that we do. So the bottom line comment is we try, but it, it, it is what it is. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Commissioner LaFosso. Commissioner Kaufman. Thank you, Chair Work. I, I don't really want to admonish you for that. <laughs> Wait till later. Couple of quick, couple of quick comments. I completely agree with uh, Commissioner LaFaso on this naming issue. I just do not see downtown as a meaningful branding of any kind. Um, people are obviously confused. The fact is, this document contributes to the confusion. 
you have central city design guidelines. You don't have downtown design guidelines. Let's change it. Let's let's call it what it is and end the confusion going forward. Um, enough said about that. I, I, it isn't just editorial. There are substantive implications of this. And this is a plan that's going to last, and it does have... Um, you want buy-in from all these neighborhoods to be part of what we consider to be the central city. Um, so, I, I, again, I, I agree with Commissioner Alfaso. I think we should make that change. On the uh, infrastructure finance piece, I understand that there is this essentially a very big hole in a half a billion dollar project that's going to last a long time. Um, my concern is that we just leave it as a blank. Um, if, we, if we really see that there's this big hole and we don't have a strong history, nor do any other local jurisdictions you know, have a strong history in securing funding of that, of that magnitude, I think we've got to think about uh, how we deal with scaling back the plan and adjusting to that potential emerging reality. I hope that's not the case. I hope we can secure all the funding um, that's in the other funding pot, but I just don't know how realistic that is. Um, so I think we've got to think about how the plan scales back or gets adjusted over time, uh, not in five-year increments, but up front, um, to make it more realistic. Uh, and then the last piece is, goes back to a comment that I made about conversion of structured parking garages. I, you made the comment, Mr. Sandlin, that we, we don't like to have stand uh, surface parking lots, and we encourage the conversion of those lots to um, more amenable uses. And I, I know that's true. I don't think we do the same thing with uh, structured parking garages. And I had a very specific idea about what we should convert those garages to. Let, let's back away from that. Let's talk about this as a potential design guideline for structured parking garages. Given that in the next five to ten years, we may see some very radical changes in car ownership and in patterns of use, that if anybody wants to build a structured parking garage at this point, we should um, require that they show us how that particular structured parking garage can com be convertible to any other use. So it's the issue of including convertibility as a design guideline in the development of structured parking garages. Um, that's at least a start for me. Um, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I, I do want to thank you for your work. This is really complicated, and I think you've got a lot of balls in the air, and there are a lot of issues to consider, and the, their interaction is incredibly complicated. Uh, so I appreciate what, what you've done uh, with this, and I know that some of these comments are central, but some of them are just picking at the edge. But they're issues that, that we, we care about, and they're longer-term kinds of things. 
Anyway, thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Kaufman. Commissioner Ogilvie? Thank you. Um, I'd also like to echo Commissioner Kaufman's sentiments. It's, it's a big piece of work and a challenging task. And I love the idea of um, submitting a flexibility plan for parking garages. Um, and, you know, the, the document touched a little bit about the the future of driving and autonomous vehicles and people are using rideshare services a lot more. And I think home or car ownership, especially in the central city, will will only decrease. And as people go out, they're, they're relying on these other services, not their own cars to do so. Um, I have a few comments. I'll try to be brief. Um, just a couple comments on, on the history and, and cultural aspect of the document. I think it's important. I know, you, you know, it's got to be pretty light, but when you talk about redevelopment downtown, um, that you also mention um, some of the displacement that happened as a result of that, because um, I think not just to preserve and record history, but it's also, we're also directly dealing um, with some of the fallback on that, you know, displacement and, um, and so forth. And also, we talk a lot about how diverse Sacramento is, so I was surprised when the different there were little blurbs about the different districts for instance the lavender district there was no mention of the lgbtq community and how it's a hub for that community it, it talks about it being a vibrant um entertainment district but you know i think it would be worth mentioning some of our cultural resources within the document um moving on to the implementation actions and the timelines um i don't I have a problem with the timelines for the anti-displacement um, goals and also addressing climate change and resiliency. I think both of those issues need to be addressed now and not deferred to 2019 and 2021, respectively. Um, and also the Alley Activation Best Practices Manual, while maybe not um, critical for, for life safety, Deferring that to 2021 seems like we could maybe move that up since um, that's happening now and there were questions about that tonight. Um, and just in my own experience working with the city as an architect and trying to activate an alley, I think it's important in that team, I think that the impl or the responsible um, staff was the, was the public works division and maybe that needs to be coordinated with planning and also transportation because there's some there seems to be some disconnect between goals um when i was working on an alley activation project sort of and you know got a lot of feedback from transportation and they essentially treated this alley which was very low traffic like a normal street um with 30 mile per hour um you know just a busy street and alleys tend to not be busy so um, i don't think they should have the same some of the same guidelines that normal streets do. Um, I will comment separately online about um, adding some of the climate change verbiage to the conditions of approval. And just want to reiterate when a bicycle, when a sidewalk is used as a bicycle route, I'd like to suggest that there be paint demarcations actually on the sidewalk so pedestrians and bicyclists know which which side they should be on. Um, and in the bike section under the public realm guidelines, on page, never mind, I addressed that. On page 467, I would add a picture um, 
of a typical bike corral. I think the only pictures you had were art bikes and some of the non-standard Sacramento parking or bike parking. Um, and under illumination, I would consider adding some best practices for bird safe building. I think um, the city of San Francisco has bird safe building guidelines in their, in their planning code. Um, it's pretty shocking if you hear of the numbers um, of birds that are killed by impacting buildings because they're drawn to the light. Um, and also on the illumination front, I mean, it's a, you can address that. Um, I think you should set maximums for levels of illumination, not just minimums, and maybe refer to some night sky best practices, um, not just for the birds, but also for the humans. Um, and then I think there was discussion about eliminating the tower bridge kind of as, a, as an icon and decorative feature at night. And I would maybe do some research on the effects of um, the salmon population, the sundial bridge in Redding. They had under bridge lighting, and, and I think they saw some real issues with spawning. I think that's all. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Ogilvie. Commissioner Bodipa member. Thank you, Chair Burke. Um, again, I echo my fellow commissioners and uh, congratulating staff and their consultants for a, a lot of hard work that shows in the report and shows in the outreach. Um, our, our job is to provide comment to hopefully add to it. But what I also want to thank you is for take, taking our comments to, to heart at the previous uh, presentation, I know that uh, uh, Mr. Salen reached out to myself and others to get some clarification and try to get those questions answered. So I would say to the public who's asked questions, that I have sincere confidence that staff will reach out and do their best to address your questions uh, as it's something that they do very well. Um, in terms of adding comments uh, related, I, I echo uh, Commissioner, um, no, actually, Commissioner Commissioner Kaufman's first comment um, that he made as it relates to uh, the parking and the automated cars uh, of the future, I think that's an extremely important uh, consideration. Uh, Commissioner Ogilvie's comment about diversity, something that I echo, and again, would we'll, we'll take a look at the historic section and, and really really look a little closer about how you can talk about that history. There seems to be some pieces that that could add to the context um, and add to even some of the district des descriptions. Commissioner Ogilvie talked about the Lavender District. District Again, we talked about the Plain Districts, the Chinatown District. There's there's some more that can be there and that can actually influence future development. Um, and I'd love to see that. Um, I've, while I was really happy to see the discussion of arts as a part of the plan, I found it interesting that we don't have at least identified as a planning district, an art district. Um, and I think there's an opportunity, particularly when you look at the new B Street Theater and, and the other art-related uses that are being developed in that area. Um, in terms of the other cities that I've traveled and, and tried to study, uh, the creation of a, a clear designated arts district has really been beneficial to uh, central city or downtown development. Um, so I would really uh, encourage uh, the opportunity to, to, to evaluate that and look at uh, potentials to, to include and incorporate that. 
And then I also would like to just take a look at the compatibilities. I know uh, some of the public uh, have mentioned uh, height and density compatibility with their existing neighborhoods, but also just the edge uh, compatibility. So taking a look at the compatibility and flow with the rail yards, with the SAC station, with uh, Oak Park, with other parts of the city that are along the edges uh, to ensure that there is flow and consistency. I, I realize this is a huge undertaking, but to ensure that what Mr. Taylor is working on on the SAC station plan, to ensure what's going on with the rail yards, that there is some real uh, flow and intentional connectivity between those neighborhoods. I think that's an opportunity that we can really capitalize on to make this plan work and have life. Um, again, I'm all about uh, being intentional. And I think the one thing that we've talked and we've heard from staff and from the mayor himself is that he wants Sacramento to be a place that's open for business and, and really to make sure that we're looking at providing the amenities, the educational components, um, the park discussion. And I know that there's, there was a uh, restriction in terms of the park designation in the Central Business District. I think we may want to evaluate that as it relates to some of our market competition as to if that puts us at an advantage or disadvantage from a recruitment standpoint. Um, uh, and then height and density obviously being, being one. But one thing I, I do want to say that makes me excited about this plan is just embracing the sustainability component, uh, the CEQA streamlining component, I think is going to be very beneficial, uh, particularly for this body here to, to move and fast track certain projects as we move, move along and will be a significant financial benefit um, uh, for the city and for the, the, the community. So I'm impressed at where we are. Uh, I th one of the community members mentioned aspirational uh, as a way to describe this, and, and I believe it is so. And uh, I'm excited to see the next steps in the months to come. Thank you, Commissioner Podipa, member. Commissioner LaFossil. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I can tell people want to go home, but I had a few other little issues. One thing that Commissioner Ogilvy said, is there a place in this plan where there's a bike route that's explicitly on the sidewalk? End street between 10th and 15th? Outside, uh, I'm sorry, the north side of the street. You mean along Capitol Park? Okay. Um, I, I agree with the comment. Um, I was chewing on, there, there's a, I'm going to back up a second. It is, th this, it, the other commissioners, right, th this is a big, this is a big challenge. And yeah, when I saw it was 995 pages in the staff report, I'm like, oh my goodness. And these are always a challenge to digest in the six or so days we get them. Um, I, I did think that just as a general higher level comment, they related to some of the things we've sort of wanted to probe into over the years on a, a somewhat a more informational level, talking about special meetings just to talk about design guidelines in general. It was a bear to figure out what the changes in the design guidelines were. Um, uh, candidly, I'm not sure I've read the Central City guidelines as closely as I did today, um, and I didn't realize how much they emphasize corridors, and that's another issue that we've talked about. I know corridors, corridors generically, corridors across the city, but just the corridor focus. Um, this would have been so much easier to digest if we'd had an opportunity to break it down. Um, and I'm still struggling with the, you know, sort of the micro and the macro. Um, 
And, I mean, the plan itself has all those, you know, implementation steps, you know, they take us lots of little places, but the, the one I was going to zero in on, there is a statement about, um, I, I forgot the phrase, managing competing modes of transportation. Um, and a while back I was going to ask if there was a place where bicycles, I read that to imply somewhere that there's a, a, a preferred mode of transportation in an area and we shouldn't put them all in conflict. And I was going to ask if there was a place where bicycles were the dominant form of, of transportation. And I guess I got my answer. It's the north side of the sidewalk on, Fifth Street, on, on N Street between 10th and 15th. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm migrating my way into those alley comments that Commissioner Ogilvie made and Mr. Plum made. And I know there's some alley stuff about um, the Central City Guidelines has some parcel-specific Adley Guidelines and not in the historic district. And I know the Preservation Commission is going to talk to you guys again next week on this uh, issue that they've been burnishing that we a little bit talked about when we had the 2218 Capital Appeal on how much mass there ought to be on the subdivided parcels where you're creating a new parcel on the alleyway. And um, one question is, the page or two in the um, Central City Design Guides talks about a guideline that's not in an historic district. What's the guideline when it is in an historic district? I know that the Preservation Commission's burnishing to get that answer. Um, well, just to just to update on that issue, the the Preservation Commission is is working with staff and developing an ordinance for standards for development along alleys in historic districts. So it would be going beyond guidelines. These would actually be codified standards for development to to look at the the form massing scale of the of these developments so um that i think would i i'm not sure if if we if we yeah we do have specific guidelines in the central city design guidelines pertaining to alley development um right now i, I can't recall okay I, I realize i'm conflating development along an alley which is on a private parcel from what actually occurs in the alley itself which is the public realm and i was going to do the private parcel side first and the public realm side second. Anyway, I just zeroed in on it, said non-historic district, and I thought, I, I mean, maybe maybe you don't need a design guideline if you have hard, hard rules in an ordinance. Maybe you apply the design guideline, generally speaking, and if there's anything more rigorous in an in ordinance, you reference the ordinance and let the ordinance prevail. And I'm we, sure you guys can figure that out. We do have some uh, implementation program for developing design guidelines specific to historic districts um, which would come after this ordinance that's been developed so uh, eventually we would develop context statements for each historic district and appropriate guidelines so um, but as for yeah the, the alley activation that that's just a there's been a lot of work and research done and thought about how to appropriately activate an alley um, but it's very you know you have your commercial res and residential and um, even have topography downtown so or in the CBD 
So um, that was seemed like a logical uh, implementation measure to start developing policy standards, locations, and appropriate design, appropriate areas. Uh, just just continuing a little bit more on the public realm side. I mean, our our alleys are actually particularly useful. I mean, you know. I read all this stuff on curb cuts, and we can curtail curb cuts because we have all this opportunity for alley access. And I think about our treatment of curb cuts, and I walk down the street in San Francisco, and I laugh because that's curb cut city because they have long, narrow blocks, and they don't have a lot of alley access, so they have to have, you know, garages on the street, and, and we don't. But, you know, apropos to Commissioner Ogilvie's question about this notion of the alley being a street where someone can go 30 miles an hour and... Mr. Plum's comment, which he's raised in a discrete context on a prior project. Um, I mean, it seems to me, and, and, it, and it also came up, I recall, um, Walk Sacramento had some issues about the alley, uh, whatever is the name of the alley between uh, Capitol and N Street, um, Matsui Alley, I guess it is, um, between uh, 28th and 27th, that was back when we were doing the uh, the Sutter Hotel project, and I think they wanted some more rigorous uh, 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 pedestrian safety standards. And I thought I saw something in the report, in the whole plan as I was reading it, something about bollards, and it made me think that there was some idea that some alleys would be, traffic would be barred in some alleys. You know, when you read a thousand pages, things stick in your brain. You can't remember where you read them. Is there any discussion anywhere in the plan about limiting some alley spaces to prohibit vehicles to make them exclusively pedestrian spaces? In this central city four guidelines, there are some um, concepts for alley activation. I believe there they they mention the use of ballers, but um, I, I do. Take your point. Uh, it's it's a uh, we do rely on these alleys to reduce curb cuts and driveways and to restrict car travel. There um, could have some unintended consequences. And then also the challenge of you have bollards, you still need to have service vehicles going in, pick up trash and um, and the and the like. So it's it's alleys are, are difficult when you try and account for ADA access and everything else. So um, the puzzle. And it's my sense that um, because they're such a valuable resource and because there are so many competing needs and because they are limited space, both in just in size and design, um, but sooner or later we're going to have to make some hard choices. And maybe we limit them to service vehicles and as access points to the people who live on them. Maybe we do something that sends a stronger signal to motorists that you ought not to be, you know, using an alley as a street. You know, cross cross the block through the alley, cross the street, go through the alley in the next block, cross the street. Personally, I don't do it, but, you know, occasionally I'm a little, you know, chagrined to see car the way cars use the alleys at times, and I don't think it's widespread, but... You know, different people have different perspectives on what's appropriate for an alley. And um, anyway, I, I hope that we will, you know, put ourselves in a position to, to make some of these hard choices. Um, 
because I don't think they're really going to be pedestrian activated spaces unless there's some degree of predictability. Again, residents using them, service vehicles using them, emergency vehicles using them, that's one thing. Um, you know, general, you know, car access zones is something else. And I don't know how you regulate that, but anyway, it's just, just putting it out there. Um, one last question. It's a, so somebody asked a question about parking enforcement. And you said something in your presentation, Mr. Sandlin, about I, I thought the basic parking rule still was you don't have residential permit parking unless a certain set of neighbors decide they want it and do that little, you know, voting thing. And maybe it was one of your maps a year ago had all those discrete areas. Maybe it was a different presentation where we didn't have permit parking. The area I know it's really conspicuous is uh, around O Street and 16th and P which is one of the reasons why we did the um, SAC brew bike site on P and, excuse me, Q and 16th. The neighbors were so cranky because they didn't have permit parking. <laughs> um, did you say that, that we're moving a step where the parking administrator, manager, whatever the right title is, can impose permit parking without necessarily getting those consent provisions? No, 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 no. You still need to have a vote to establish those districts what we're looking at is and the parking manager is very keen on having a policy that can support him to not allow residents new residents um, to participate in an existing residential parking permit in cases when the on-street parking supply is already heavily impacted if there's um, there's a residential parking permit area and the on-street supply is, is, is looking okay he's fine with letting more people in they evaluate the parking supply on street and off street every three years so um it's just having having that ability and flexibility to make those decisions to make sure that um there's there's adequate neighborhood on street parking it would also uh, not allow uh, residential permit parking if the uh, developer doesn't provide the minimum amount of parking so they don't want somebody to build a building with no parking and say we're going to use the streets for a parking lot. So they, they have to at least provide the minimum amount of parking to be eligible for on-street parking. I, I, I follow. I, I see a potential unintended consequence of the newest arrival on the block gets to determine what the rule is based on what they did and what does that mean for the people who are already there. Um, I'm sure you've thought of that, but um, I'll, I'll cogitate on that answer. Um, Last quick comment and then I'll yield. That first speaker who was concerned about fees, I know you were pretty clear that it's fees for developers, not fees for existing residents. But we have to restore the people's faith in what a fee is, what an assessment is, what a tax is, um, you know, so they believe what we're writing. And when you, I'm cramming the font in that two-pager Ms. Buss wanted, um, but maybe you can, you know, put that in there too. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Commissioner LaFasso. Commissioner Ogilvie? Thanks. Just wanted to follow up on the discussion of bollards. I think it's a could be a good solution for alleys in some places. There are, um, you know, manual options for bollards where emergency access personnel can have keys or um, waste management services can have keys. And there's also automated ones that go up and down, which are probably really expensive. But you know, a resident could drive up conceivably with a fob and it would go down and they could drive in and then it would go back up. Thank you, Commissioner Ogilvie. Any more Commissioner comments? Okay. 
Thank you so much, staff. Uh, I have a couple comments that we can wrap up real quickly. Uh, I like the fact that we talked about the alley activation, the public art component, and the modest housing, which I'm assuming is ADUs, which I love to death, accessory dwelling units. Um, um, one thing I, I would recommend is maybe a conversation with DGS, State Department of General Services. I know they have a lot of plans in the works for their state office buildings as well. Um, so. But thank you so much for the hard work um, and the outreach, phenomenal. And thanks for everyone for coming and participating in the process. So with that, I'd like to adjourn and end item number five. Uh, we'll go to public matters, uh, public comments, matters not on the agenda. It's no, nor... Della available. We have a public comment card. Is he still available? No, Joe. No, Della. Okay, perfect. We'll go to the next item, which is public comments. Matters on the agenda. Any additional public comment? Please step forward, sir. Card, but I guess I put them both on the same card. Sure. Step forward. Um, I've visited Brisbane, Australia. And, um, you know, I hear Daryl Steinberg's thing about waterfront development. Uh, the World Exposition from 1988, they did a wonderful job developing Brisbane's waterfront. I, I you know, I correlate Brisbane a lot with uh, Sacramento. And I also would look at their water taxi system. Because, you know, as they're talking about, like, that elephant trolley, um, Brisbane does water taxis with, you know, local service and express water taxis. And it works very good in their entertainment district. Um, off the subject, I'd like to speak to Mr. Coffin and Mr. Lafazo about some of the items you were talking about, just one-on-one -on -one after you're done. Thank you. Um, okay. Next is uh, member comments, items, questions, meetings, conference reports. I just wanted to just highlight two things before I adjourn. Um, the American Planet Association California chapter had their conference uh, late September. Uh, I attended representing the commission. Uh, Commissioner Padipa Memba also attended. It was three days here in Sacramento. About a thousand planners from around the state. Our, our mayor was a keynote speaker at the policy luncheon. Uh, Supervisor Serena spoke as well. Um, I know Greg Sandlin from our staff was on a panel and other uh, planning staff were attended or either were on panels. So um, it was great to hear where usually people say, we want to be more like Portland or we'd be more like another city to have a thousand planners in Sacramento for three days walking around, taking tours of the R Street corridor of Oak Park and saying, hey, our city needs to be more like Sacramento. That's a good thing. So um, I think it's the good work of the commission, the good work of the staff, and of course our uh, city staff throughout and our council. So it was uh, tears to my eye to hear planners walk around saying we want to be more like Sacramento. I just feel sorry for Portland now. Uh, <laughs> uh, Commissioner Bodipa Memba. Thank you, Commissioner Burke. I'll be very brief. Uh, again, <laughs> thanks for the opportunity for staff to participate uh, at, at the APA conference. I also had the opportunity to sit on a panel. First of all, Commissioner Burke, I, I didn't make your panel, but I heard you did a phenomenal job presenting. <laughs> uh, but got to sit on a panel with uh, about 60 other planning commissioners throughout the state. 
and you'll be happy to note that we have the largest planning commission of anyone uh, that was in the room. <laughs> they were astounded when I gave them the number of commissioners that we had. The average in the room was, was between five and seven. So um, just take that for how you want to take it. Um, but again, it was very impressive to have so many folks say so many great things about the city. Sacramento was a great host, and I encourage commissioners when the next opportunity comes up to participate. So thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Rodipa member. And lastly, I just want, also want to bring up uh, the Preservation Sacramento Commission. We, as a commission, have a, a seat. Um, it's a vacant. I, as chair, appoint. If you're interested, let me know. Um, we definitely would like to be represented on that as well. Commissioner Fossil served us on that. If you have a couple words, just to tell folks what the, what, what the board the commission does and your experience and encourage folks to participate. Am I recognized, Mr. Chair? Yes, sir. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, sorry not to be all nitpicky. It's the Sacramento, Heri Sacramento Heritage Incorporated is the name of the nonprofit corporation that is wholly owned by the city of Sacramento. And corrected. It's okay. And uh, um, there are a lot of preservation groups in Sacramento, the Sacramento Historical Society, Preservation Sacramento. Yes, there's the Preservation Commission. It's very difficult for people to keep track of them. For all those of you who asked questions about our city's heritage, be it Chinatown or the Lavender District or this and that, um, this uh, entity's job is to uh, be the steward of some of the city's historic resources. Um, many of them are not physical or or, or such, mainly what they, this entity does is they're responsible for the city's historic plaque program. Um, they administer a very modest grant fund for homeowners to, in historic districts who have contributing resource or historic designated properties to make, get, get some grants to help them improve them and preserve them. Um, and uh, their newest thing is uh, uh, sponsoring and expanding some walk tours along the lines of the tours that um, Mr. Chair was talking about just a moment ago that uh, impressed all those planners. Um, there's a lot of people doing tours. It's a cool thing to do. I did this very interesting one in uh, uh, Oak Park a couple weeks ago. Uh, this is a little bit of what they do, but this is all. But this is an opportunity to push the envelope on preserving our city's uh, uh, heritage, however you want to define it, and some of you want to define it. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Commissioner Fossil. Thank you for your service um, on that uh, commission. Uh, if you have any questions about it, let me know. If you want to serve, let me know as well. With that, and seeing how late it is in the evening, I'd like to adjourn immediately. <laughs>